What's happening, everyone? Welcome to the Paranormies. I'm Johnny Monoxide, and tonight I am joined by Dogbot. Hello. Howdy, y'all. What's happening, man? It's just me and you. Man, uh, I'm a little... I'm a little sad, a little despondent today, but uh, I'm yeah. happy he's in a better place. Yeah, I know. If, in fact, any of that stuff is true, press F in the chat. Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, has passed on from the terminal cancer, died in his prison cell. Yeah, Uncle Ted, you didn't deserve to be in there. You should have stayed in the cabin in the woods, but your brother was a traitor. If, in fact, anything of the story is true, what Dogbot just said is absolutely factual. Unfortunately, uh, in this land of the fake and the gay, the the kingdom of Lubriconda, um, it's probably not true. I do uh, appreciate that I have both of his books, mm-hmm, and same. at some point, possibly in the future, I might actually get to reading all of Anti Tech Revolution. But it's, it's not that long. At least for the time being, I've I've read the uh the, the compilation of essays and yeah. the air quotes manifesto industrial society in its future oh okay and okay so you have very prescient okay. stuff yeah i know very well yeah like i said i don't I'm, again i don't necessarily believe that he did it i believe that i believe that he like like and if, if he did he like your george orwells and your aldous huxley were uh, put there to put it out like that anyways speaking of writers um we have a writer on the show with us tonight it is my friend from Twitter. His name is Schwab. Uh, we've been mutuals for, wow, it's been going on almost a year. And he writes very, very, very interesting articles about esoteric matters very on his articles. Schwab stack, which is on Substack. And uh, I'm very excited for us to have an opportunity to talk to him tonight because he's got a lot of really cool stuff. Yes, we're having Schwab from Schwab Stack on in just a minute. Um, yeah, I dove into some of his articles, man. He goes, for a guy who's only been writing, I mean, his, his stack's only been around for a year, and a little over a year, and he's got a very prolific uh, catalog already. And it what goes I, deep. Every, every one of his articles goes deep. He is, what I, he's like oh, the sorry. deep dive guy. Go ahead, I'm sorry. What I find very intriguing about his articles is it's not a lot of speculation or even opinion. Uh, he does a lot of research and and provides a lot of different data points mm-hmm. that, for the particular article that you're reading, connect together in a very nice fashion. He does, and he and he um he gives all of his references too. So highly highly referenced all of his stuff. So we are going to jump right into it with Schwab. That what you're just uh, what you're describing kind of comprises my entire um, at this point my entire purpose for being on Twitter being online at all is is that kind of um, you know synchronizing with different people uh, that I'm on the same same wavelength with and I'm I also try to use uh, my Twitter presence for research it it doesn't always work but. Um, sometimes I get little gems here and there. I, I recently got something um, uh, to do with my a Reality Ends Here um, series that I'm still working on trying to, I'm going to do a third one. But 
some of that information is really hard to come by and, and it's and it's pretty expansive. There's a lot of different things. And sometimes if you just reach out into the ether, things will come back to you. I'm going to say I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm very impressed with the way that uh, the discipline that you have in curating your chats and the way that you present information on Twitter, which is, you know, according to Lone Scum, the the public square now. You know, uh, whenever you see a toxic element, uh, you remove it immediately and you don't make apologies for it. You you've made you made the decision that you're you're not going to provide consent to toxic people in your personal space. And I have a great deal of respect for that because some people would have a tendency to say, well, they were OK this one time, but, you know, I'll let this thing go. But you give certain people the axe and I appreciate that. Yeah, it's just sort of uh, maintenance. It, it isn't personal. People take it personal, but you know that it, it is what it is. <laughs> you can't control how people feel. You recently had a run-in with uh, who we've termed bugnats about it, the the issue of the moon landing. Would you like oh to? Uh, would you care to elaborate a little further on that? Or, or this is, that is news like to me. To just let go. Yeah, this is all brand new to me. I have not heard this. I don't do the Twitter. We have a Twitter account, Schwab, like the, the the show does. I don't do the Twitter machine very much. I got banned a long time ago, and I just kind of stayed off. But uh, so. let's um let's circle back around to it. I've already sort of put, put it in the past. It's okay. um things do pop up, and uh, I can't say definitively if it's you know if it's worth thinking about. It could have just been you know the dedicated efforts of a very tiny group. Let's just put it like that. Sometimes that's what all of these things are. It's it just happens a people. lot of time like that. Yes. It's an ongoing source of amusement for us on the Paranormies with a certain brand of internet poster who seems to be perfectly comfortable with questioning the official narratives of things such as the Holocaust or the issue of the Great Replacement. But for some reason, they can't seem to wrap their head around that the entire moon landing was done on a movie set. You know, like stuff like that, stuff like that we just find amusing. It it does drive me kind of crazy. The, um, the inability to make inferences to, you know, for four years, Trump talked about fake news, right? And it just takes one step of, you know, of extrapolation from that point to think, okay, so maybe some of the recent history that we've gotten, and they'll apply that to something as that's like a huge cornerstone that goes just beyond history. It's like a, uh, you know, part of the civil religion, um, you know, the basic uh, moral co- economy or whatever, however you want to term it, of, of the entire West. You know, it's the it's the foundation, the the justification for many of the things that we do, we, you know, the Holocaust um, and World War II and all of that. But uh, they'll apply it to that central thing, but the things that came out of it, you know, all that, all that progressed from there will, you know, for, you know, not just the moon landing, but the entire, um, the Sputnik narrative, mm-hmm. uh, the Cold War narrative, all of these things mm-hmm. sort of fall apart very quickly, but they refuse to extrapolate, you know, uh, the idea that this huge chunk of history could be faked or uh, misrepresented, hoaxed, but they don't apply that to all of these other, these other uh, areas. Well, a lot of the times with that, uh, these sacred cows, these things that they've attached their horse to um, are, you know, 
huge things of white achievement that you're just taking away from them by doing this. Mm. So, and yeah, that's it's- that's the biggest thing. Like I know you've uh, you've talked about Tartaria before. Uh, the whole Tartarian narrative, for example, like you know, just uh, destroys white achievement. It takes away white achievement by saying it was some other civilization that built well, yeah, this amazing stuff. That's kind of silly. Yeah. To, if you're a hard, to- oh sorry. It's the same Go people. Ahead. It's the same people. If you're a hardcore internet Nazi, then denying the Holocaust is the greatest denial of white achievement of all. This is true. <laughs> We've said this many times. We've said this many times. It's like, look, I mean, and honestly, I, I've, I've quit. I've, I've quit denying it because, like, I grew up around West Hartford, man. Like, I, I, I'm, surpri- I'm surprised it only happened once. So, like. <laughs> Well, what's what's funny is when you when you watch any videos of uh, Holocaust revisionists from the '80s and everything, mm-hmm. these arguments that are made on the internet today aren't aren't new. And what's even funnier about the uh, about the revisionists from the '80s is it wasn't as pervasive uh, a talking point or an issue back then. Like they were trying to stem the tide of what's become an amazing historical grift mm. and. A religion, like they, actually. Like they, they made they made no traction back then, even though everything they said was completely sensible and uh, even scientific to a level. They were able to go on major media shows and talk about it back in the day. Donahue and uh, yeah. all that, right? <laughs> Remember, go on, on on ABC Network, uh, uh, like when all the housewives are home, right? And <laughs> talk about the Holocaust. And have, they had that. They had, they had the one yeah. girl who denied the Holocaust. Like it was amazing. And I'm not saying that I I, I don't deny the Holocaust anymore because obviously that that's a silly story. Uh, but yeah, I just I, I, there's no point. There's no point in in. Uh, ruminating on it is one thing but yeah that's the one yeah. thing that everybody's okay with you know you deny the holocaust but then 9-11 was obviously uh saudis and, and and egyptians controlled by now they were controlled by the jews the jews obviously like masterminded everything but but it was still sand people and planes and planes somehow. yeah yeah and and uh unburnable driver's licenses or whatever <laughs> and, and completely inflated tires I've the, when you guys use this term bug net, for me the the where this arises from is uh, you know I just call it racist normies mm-hmm. people that have become kind of disaffected humiliated by rising immigration you know maybe they went to a bad school they had they had some run ins and they're basically liberals and a lot of them don't you know they're atheists they're very secular in their worldview. They don't have any metaphysics. They don't really, they're, they're, they've gone into this space that we're in, you know, the sort of more, you know, further right, the dissident sphere. And they, they're just bringing their normie values with them. That's, that's all that's happening. And the only thing that's different about them is their, is their resentment. And they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they've just sort of drifted over into this, into the space because they're, it's a way for them to, you know, it's an outlet. They can uh, express their frustrations. And I don't have a problem with that. Honestly, I don't have a problem with people coming into the sphere and, and doing that. But what they're doing is they're trying to, um, you know, inflict their normie views on the rest of us. And yeah, they, uh, they, yeah. they try to gatekeep our intellectual curiosity into things that aren't surface level. And it's and and that's where it becomes that where it be, that's where it becomes a conflict. It's like 
Um, it's not, and it's not like the, uh, just let them enjoy things. It's like, um, I can still be upset about the great replacement, but also think Bigfoot is cool. So get off my back. <laughs> that's a whole other thing. Thinking Bigfoot is cool is a whole other thing. That's, that's not even, I don't even think that's the crux of the thing with, with the people that we've termed bug nuts. I mean, Schwab, you obviously know what a bug man is, right? He does. Yeah, he, defi- I, he defined it without even okay, right. hearing so you know, full definition. So you know what, bu- yeah, you know what bug nets are. So they're racist, basically racist liberals is what we call them, uh, because yeah. they have because they have a liberal I, worldview on most things, other than the fact that they hate these goddamn Arabs, right? These ragheads who did nine eleven and uh, and all these Mexicans in our schools, right? Like they, that's yeah. what they're mad about, right? Yeah, we we could have we could have universal health care and space communism if only for <laughs> if we weren't putting if we weren't <laughs> if dropping we weren't, all this if fun. We weren't spending trillions on that 13 percent right and oh god do they hate the 13 percent and which is totally you know look i went to an all-black school i understand you know um it's not fun being like one of six white kids in an all-black school in the south uh but but at the same time these people they, they come with their racism and then they still come with their same degeneracy uh you know the blackout the, the getting the blackout the wignat they call them like the guys who get like blackout drunk and that's their that's their whole entire thing is to get blackout drunk and scream and throw uh throw romans at people and racial slurs and, and racial slurs. yes to say racial slurs is the most important thing for these people and that's not but but when you get into some of the stuff we talk about when you talk about like say tartaria or you want to talk about um the world's fairs or these amazing uh yeah. architectural uh, feats of architecture around the world that you have no explanation for other than the brass plaque or the little the little inscription under the picture in the history book a lot of what they do is projection. And this is how you know that they're uh, spiritually leftist is because all they can do is, uh, is project because these things that you're talking about have um, widespread appeal, mm-hmm. not, you know, not everybody, but at least there's a, there's a big audience out there that finds these things interesting, especially if you do it in a sort of, um, you know, a more uh, speculative, a sort of uh, open way where you can just show people the buildings of, of Tartaria and things and, and sort of wonder at what's going on there or with any of these other topics. Mm-hmm. Um, they do. You can see that they get traction. Whereas the things that they do, uh, which are, you know, I've seen gore posted. I've seen just really hyper racist, you know, very just performative over the top stuff. And I've been you know, told that my ideas are, you know, I've been mischaracterized in, in what I believe, first of all, but told that these ideas are unattractive. And I know for a fact that they are not, <laughs> that there's, um, you know, there's, there's a huge appeal out there. People are interested and curious for different points of view, for alternative points of view, and especially for, um, you know, more serious styles of, of research into these things as well. So that's kind of where my position is. But all they do is sort of project that, um, you know, this is unattractive, whereas there's there's very <laughs> fringe racist genocidal views are going to somehow be a- appealing to anyone. Mm. Like I could talk to, you know, anywhere in the world, I could walk around and talk about giants with people, sure. you know, sure. of the existence of giants. Oh, I've done that um, in Europe. You know, if you go into various communities, you know, especially older places, a lot of these people have a, a sort of, um, you know, uh, 
I guess I guess they've they've not been um changed by modernity that much. They're still kind of the same as they were hundreds of years ago. And and they're not phased by that kind of talk. But if I was, you know, talking about slaughter, <laughs> I don't even want to say it, you know, but like like, you know, um abusing gypsies and, and all of these things, they would think I was a weird guy. You know, that or you know, being racist towards brown people for no reason that I was like really angry about it. It would be very off-putting to most people. So yeah, I think that's a lot of what happens is there's this projection that occurs. Mm-hmm. It's the uh, uh, it, like the Vox Day, ahead. like the Vox Day. SJWs always. What, I don't remember what they were, but I know project. SJWs always lie. SJWs always project. SJWs always. One of these guys are basically racist SJWs. Another. That's well, another I don't want to. I don't want to frame them like that. I I think of well, liberals as being you know. You know, sort of spiritually brown. Let's put it that way. The, <laughs> there, it's a lot of it is midwittery. They just don't have the capacity to model uh, the psyche of other people, especially the people mm-hmm. they don't like. So um, I don't know if, the, if they are exactly SJWs, but they're definitely. It's definitely part of that behavior profile of the liberal of of a uh, sure of your person that you know your sort of golem type person who just sort of gets uh, who falls into. He becomes a sort of active participant in propaganda. You know, mm-hmm. if, you, if you have like your grug wit, you have your, <laughs> you know, you're sort of just normal guy who just sort of passively receives propaganda. And then you have maybe your, let's say your 140 IQ guy who, you know, uses, maybe uses propaganda for his own purposes, sort of plays with it, uh, exists within those constraints and kind of, you know, uh, uses it to his own uh, for his own purposes perhaps but then you have that midwit in the middle that just sort of becomes an extension of it that they you know they get filled with it and uh exist in the sort of golem uh have this sort of golem existence i believe the outward aggression of most midwits is actually driven by fear and mm-hmm. it, you know that like fear of the un like literal fear of the unknown and and if if you crack the surface of the unknown for them, it's too much. It's too bright for them. They don't mm-hmm. like it. Mm-hmm. And so like, that's why talking about these kinds of ideas with them, it always gets the same result. You're distracting from Jewish power up. Uh, no, like you can walk and chew gum at the same time. Yeah, you know, exactly. You, that's you a good can, way to put it. You know, you can note, you can notice that there is an ethnic group that doesn't have your best interests at heart and also think that it's kind of weird that there are star forts on the Cape of the Horn of Africa. Right. You know, <laughs> like, you know, like it's 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 fine. You're allowed to, you're allowed to think about a lot of things, at, you know, other than other than uh, Jewish power. And you know, what's funny is if you look into a lot of the stuff that we look into, you, you oftentimes turn up right around the neighborhood of Jewish power. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that is kind of weird. It's kind of uh, weird how a lot of my articles end up. You know, I go through it and I, I, I put all the sources there. And then at the bottom of it, oh, it's a whole bunch of Bergstein you know, Jewish guys yeah. doing, you know, Kabbalah and sorcery. And, and it gets tied in with uh, the intelligence community a lot of the time. And people, if you read my Substack, you'll start to notice that pattern and that kind of implicit messaging. And I don't have to be strident and shout at people about Hitler, but that's the kind of implicit messaging that got us to the place that we're at now where your average normie if you question 
the Holocaust or you criticize uh, anything that Jews do at all, and even the lightest way, they will like chimp out on you. Mm-hmm. And that's not because somebody yelled at them about the Holocaust 24-7. It's because of the implicit messages in the media that they've been consuming for the past, you know, for decades. In comic books, books, TV, everywhere. It's just sort of all around you. And that's yep. how people absorb their values. Mm-hmm. They, I, I saw this uh, tweet by, uh, I think, um, I saw, I just saw somebody say online uh, that you sort of live inside of your art. Mm. And that's how, that's how humans exist. We, all of our, our, our sort of worldview um, is constructed by the art that we consume. Interesting. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Do you pronounce the guy's last name Deleuze? Yeah, I, I believe it's Deleuze. Deleuze wasn't his uh wasn't his Arcanum dialectum wasn't that influenced by the Jewish Kabbalah? Yeah, there's I, I go into that a, a bit in Paraxis that a lot of his um his work was deeply influenced with by the Kabbalah mm-hmm. and other um But yeah, if you, you a lot of the times you'll find out some of these people they're they're like the um, the grandson or uh, the descendant of you know famous rabbis things like that. And what <laughs> you're what you're really seeing is a sort of a secularization of um, of Kabbalah of their of Jewish traditions being sort of uh, you know Jewish alchemy Kabbalah being sort of uh, uh, what's the word. Um, refitted you know repurposed for for secular purposes yeah we were talking about on the show one time that sir isaac newton's personal journal writings are being compiled by this uh israeli uh, billionaire or millionaire either way he's been collecting all of these journal entries and he's not doing it to compile them to release them to the general public. He's doing them to compile them because he doesn't want people to find out that gravity is fake and it's based off of some Jewish Kabbalah nonsense. (laughs) Well, that's the thing, dude, is that everything in, quote, science, TM, is based off some Kabbalah nonsense. If you go back far enough and look, uh, it doesn't matter what it is. It always goes back to Kabbalah. It's weird. Who is the uh, the Japanese guy... um, that everybody loves Kakio, what's his face there? Um, he's like, oh, it's Miyazaki. Amazing. What's his name? Oh, I'm just thinking of the Japanese guy I like, uh, Miyazaki. I don't know, but he, uh, he, was, he was talking about, it's amazing how all this astrophysics just goes back. It, and it's just like the Big Bang. It's just like they sit in the Kabbalah. And then there's another guy who's with him, some German guy. And he's, they're, they're these big, famous, talking head science guys. I don't keep up with their names or anything, but... Uh, they oh it's amazing how all of this science just it's almost like it came directly out of the Kabbalah. Yeah, well it's cuz it did. Yeah. yeah. It's cuz it did. Cuz it did. I mean like come on guy. Like <laughs> it's not it's not a coincidence. That's one of the things yeah. we from the very beginning <clears throat> there's no such thing as coincidences especially at that level. Yeah, I've uh, um I've had run-ins with sort of high level physicists and i've you know and i've just well that was kind of one of the i guess the red pill or black pill or whatever it is about science Mm. is is actually meeting some of these people um 
you know, and realizing that they're, that they're not intelligent at all, you know, that they're not, that they're just sort of, they're sort of hacks. Uh, and yeah, when you look into it, yeah, you find out all of it really is made up. It's pretty funny. <laughs> well, I always found it funny that, uh, what's his face there? Neil, uh, Tyson, Degrassi, whatever, Degrassi, Tyson or whatever, um, Black player. science man. <laughs> yes, yes, magic black science man, the bass player. Uh, how he is a theoretical astrophysicist. If that is not the greatest fucking fleecing of all time, like, because yeah. astrophysics is a completely theoretical field. Because it, it is, because you can't, the only research you can do is like visually, right? You can look through like telescopes. Like, so you have a theoretical field and you add theoretical to the front end of that. You literally don't understand, dude. Like, and he well, says, like, he says like that. Like in the stuff. bureaucracy, the more adjectives you have to your title, the mm-hmm. less work you actually do. The right. more, the more prefixes that you have in your scientific title, the less you actually science. Mm, yeah, what they're, what that is, what theoretical physics is, is basically world building. Mm-hmm. It's, it's what a, a fiction author does. Right. It's what a fiction author does in lieu of actually writing. So it's sort of lazy very uh masturbatory part of writing fiction which can kind of get out of hand but this is what these people get paid for they're they're sort of world building Mm -hmm. cosmology and then just sort of putting it out there there's a consensus forming ritual around it i write a bit about that in um one of my recent articles about the cold war it was the i sort of got into it after i was looking into the roots of the gifted programs which Ooh. started around Sputnik mm. and um, the whole uh, cosmography, like like figuring out, uh, you know, it was basically a consensus building project on an international scale. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of how uh, I, I framed it anyway. Yeah, I just saw that article today. Uh, we have had several listeners um, DM me and send me information about the gate program we were thinking about doing an episode on the gate program this looks like a great source of prep for this as well so thank you thank you for the extra prep there <laughs> i i was fascinated in the praxis article about the delusian concept of the body without organs um i just like it 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 just it just really resonated about like it, it's kind of like it was kind of like a little bit of like a missing puzzle piece of just me trying to explain these kind of ultra terrestrial creatures that uh, are referred to as the men in black. Uh, could you get yeah. into that a little bit or just. Um, sure. The, the, as far as what, what do you want to talk about as far as the origin of that or how. Um, well, there's this line. All right. I, I got the article pulled up. There's this line and, and it's this uh, question that, that you kind of ask, how do you sanitize the continually mutating multiplicity of being the chimerization and goblinization, which is always a precursor to heavenly cataclysm as we fall further from the divine order. I, I think about that because it kind of, it kind of refers to how there was a golden age and then, and then an iron age and then we're a bronze age. And they, you know, they say in the golden age, nobody had to eat food and, and people lived to be like 300 years old. Well, that's why stuff. there's no bathrooms in any of those buildings because nobody pooped. So, yeah, basically what they're, 
what they're trying to do is you have this um have you guys heard of the the book uh changing images of man no i'm not uh, the the sri book anyway the the idea is that man's images kind of uh organize his intention and therefore his action mm. and therefore policy and you know everything he does is is formed out of that and then that in turn kind of he adapts to that image that vision and so it changes basically changes man eventually we sort of uh adapt to the thing that we envision which kind of leads to i think the different races and perhaps uh when that vision starts to uh lose resolution man so does man man starts to become incoherent you get a lot you get a lot of weird uh offshoots uh mutations psychosis uh physical i think it also affects us physically as well because of the kinds of foods that we start eating mm -hmm. and you can kind of see that the image of man in america is very grotesque and distorted you can look around and compare it to old images that you would see from the 1930s or 1950s or even the 1980s right no you 90s. can go back go back 10 right. years at a time and look at it it's it's amazing it's very stark if yeah. you just look back a hundred years. It's like a, it's like two different species, mm -hmm. and, the, and I do believe it is possible that this speciation, um, <laughs> which it can become much more radical, that there can be a sort of, uh, you know, this sort of um, dichotomy that arises between the the you know different groups. Like if you keep eating this what this kind of food, and you keep taking uh, ever more cutting edge vaccine technology and putting vaccine in quotes there whatever this stuff is you know uh and, and allow yourself to be a guinea pig meanwhile you're eating you know experimental foods as well and then you have another person that's just you know the control group that's kind of uh you know withdrawing from that they have their own chickens they're growing their own food they're doing everything that they in their power that they can to sort of uh, follow the original image of man and uh, you know you follow that lo those lines for a hundred years or even my suspicion is is that this stuff kind of can happen very quickly it doesn't really take multiple generations you can really start to see some very heavy effects you know we will within our lifetime if this keeps going and so that's um you get this kind of goblinization of different strains of, of human. And so what I think what the lose is trying to do is either describe this process or develop a system to kind of contain it to, um, to keep that, that monstrosity, that multiplicity of being and, and chimerization, goblinization uh, from, from scattering in too, too many different directions at once to sort of, have an ordering system for it that's like a non-hierarchical ordering system you know that it, you, you can't be fascist about it right you can't tell people they can't breed you can't tell people uh they can't be degenerate so there you have to figure out this very complex um the system for it and a lot of really strange ideas arise out of that 
And I think part of the reason that you have this, um, once again, you have this overlap between Kabbalah and uh, the Fortean, the, the, you know, something like a, a man in black phenomenon it, with the ideas of the bodies without organs is because he's drawing the idea of the body without organs and all of his, most of his ideas out, straight out of mysticism, straight out of um, Kabbalah and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so you do see a, 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 some pretty wild synchronicities there. Do you do you agree with the contention that the internet was created to facilitate the speeding up process of this goblinization? Um, yeah. I mean, whether it's intentional or accidental, it's obvious that 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 is having it's having that effect. I can't say um, to what degree that it was intentional, and I and you know it's hard to say that I haven't really gotten to that, but I. I would say from where I'm at right now, the things that I'm, I've learned, uh, yeah, it's intentional. <laughs> I mean, it, it would seem to me very difficult to gaslight some kid in rural Indiana into chopping his dick off into thinking that he is a purple-haired yeah. woman right. if he didn't have access to an internet that's gaslighting, that's mm-hmm. helping perpetuate a gaslighting that is beyond the capabilities of even his local bullies. Yeah, a thousand percent. Exactly right. That's if you wanted to. Nobody was cutting their dick off. Nobody was cutting their dick off. I mean, like in mass before the Internet. I mean, the Scopsies, but just just those weirdos. Yeah, well, that's like whatever. Like and again, and, you know, and you have um, what's his face there in Germany. But, uh, you know, the occasional one, you know, moving along. But yeah, no, it was the internet that helped push all of this. All of this. What do you make of the theory um, that, uh, that TikTok is supposed to help out with this as well? The, the uh, TikTok for sure is a is a um, it's like a weapon. It's a, we- is a yeah, weapon. It's definitely a weapon. You, you shouldn't really. I don't even want to talk about it any more than just calling it that. Mm-hmm. People people should just understand that first part, like that it was probably made. <clears throat> and the and how is it here? That's another. That's the next question. Is like the effect that it has on children and on people in general mm-hmm. is is almost immediately apparent to be uh, deleterious. Like you can see that it has this very powerful um, psychological effect. It, it is a psychological weapon. And how is it here? How do you have um, only the smallest amount of pushback against it? Oh, and it's no, a tepid, it's a tepid pushback it. at best, Remember? you know, yeah. for, for like, for, for a very like obscure reason, you know, oh, because of this, uh, it helps this foreign powder power collect data. Yeah, I mean, that has little to do with it. It's like they don't even want to address the, the, what it's doing to to people mm. like it's not happening. I have documents that talk about this from um, like sort of Pentagon uh, funded analysis i think from t- 2006 i don't have it in front of me right it's now it's got to so be some rand corporation paraphrase it but it was basically just talking about how um how the internet can have all of these uh these very intense psychological effects across all of these metrics to the to the extent that it creates a um a security concern that if a person is known to <clears throat> use the internet more than three hours per day they should have their you know their their psych evaluation pulled. Oh, that's and, like and that's be, literally and, every person in the West. 
Yeah. 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 That's where we are now. Yeah. I mean, I'm guilty. After, I'm guilty of that. Yeah. And that was when, 100%. when was this Schwab? When was this? This was like right around the time virality was being introduced, you know, with, uh, with the like and retweet functions okay, and on, Vine uh, and all on that, Twitter yeah. and things like that. And then Vine. Uh, around 20, 2006 to 2008, mm. a lot of the studies that were being cited were um, were coming to this conclusion. So this is before all of these, you know, it got amped up to mm-hmm. the nth degree by mm-hmm. these um, by these new mechanics. Algorithmically controlled in, uh, yeah. influencer farms. All of that stuff was was off in the distance a couple of years, or, or as far as it becoming sophisticated in in any way, mm-hmm. uh, where it is now. So, and then also there was a huge change pre uh, pre COVID, like twenty twenty. I think the average was like it was still it was bad. It was still in the range where you know if you were cleared, uh, you would you know you would have to be checked. You would have to be checked to to keep your top security clearance. It was around four hours per day, three hours per day average, and now it's like it's ridiculous. It's it's up to seven hours per day, or yeah. something like that. Six hours per day average, and that I mean that is including that's a sort of broad polling where they're sort of sort of including um, Zoomers in that, and the the average Zoomer is kind of online from waking till sleep, and I'm yeah. not I'm not making fun of the Zoomer because for my work the things that I do, I honestly am as well. But I do a lot of things to counteract that, and I'm very aware of it. Um, I do take breaks. Like, I'll take a week-long break. I took an almost a month break here uh, a couple of months back. I do a lot of things. You know, I I, I do touch grass quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> like, for real. Like, I just, I'll just, like, grab a tree, and I'll do whatever it is I can, walk nice. around, sort of sit in the sun like a lizard, Um yeah, whatever it is, you can, you know, and also uh, metaphysically as well, you know, you got to do things like, um, uh, you know, pray the rosary, uh, you know, just prayer in general to sort of reconnect yourself to your to your metaphysical sort of ethereal self because that can, that can get really muddied mm. um, and, and and twisted up by your uh, online interactions. You sort of lose, you kind of lose context a little bit. I completely agree with that. I have to start my prayer. I have to start my day off with prayer every day. It just kind of yeah. helps me get right. And, and it, right. It, it's basically mm-hmm. when I when I pray, it's 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 grat. It's basically just all gratitude. It's like, wow, uh, I get to live another day. That's pretty cool. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, yeah, they say that gratitude is the highest energy because it's it's sort of. Um, and I, I don't know. This is going to sound kind of new agey, but it does make sense. Because it's sort of like uh, um, it overcomes a lot of uh, uh, you know weird narratives that people get inside their head about I can't do this, I can't do that. You know, it, it kind of uh, breaks a lot of that down, dissolves it a bit. If you're just sitting there thinking like, "Wow, like a lot of amazing things have happened to me mm-hmm. to get me to where I'm at," that I'm still alive for you know uh, in this place, all the. Neat scrapes with death that I've had, for example, like if you're really aware and you think about probabilities a lot, you're like, wow, you know, the things I did when I was younger, I, I really should, I really shouldn't be here. You know, wow, pretty amazing stuff. I had, I had this big kind of country construction guy say to me one time, uh, he said, the more you let worry in, the more you're pushing God out. And mm-hmm. uh, I found that to be a fairly irrefutable equation 
And so, you know, it's the, the more I sit and worry about stuff, like I, I, I have no control over it and it, all it is doing, it's just consuming me. You know, so if I, if I, if I get myself into prayer and, and focus on things that I actually have some kind of phys- some kind of effect over, uh, then the, these things that I'm worried about tend to sort themselves out in ways that I had no, that I couldn't have game planned in advance. What is that? That the, what is it, the serenity prayer? God give me the wisdom. Uh, God grant yeah. me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Right there, you go. Yeah. Whether it Pretty is prayer or uh, meditation, even doing th- something like working out, lifting weights, you're organizing your intention in a way that completely changes your day. Mm-hmm. you know in your interactions so all of those things are very important having a routine uh that includes some sort of like you said some sort of meditation or lifting uh, lifting weights prayer all of those things are all good uh just sitting uh breathing you know fresh air uh you know doing mm. breathing exercises this guy like to do that first thing in the morning i liked um, what you said sitting in the sun like a lizard oh i i, I completely yeah. related to that and i did something similar oh. a couple days ago where I, fa- uh, I, I was I was walking my dog and I found a nice spot to, to sit in the grass and just sit and let the sun hit on me. And I had yeah. that notion, too. I was like, I feel like a freaking iguana on a hot rock right now. <laughs> the, uh, the one thing that I found is I'm starting to really get into the idea that miasmas are real. You know, that, mm-hmm. that kind of the old sort of supposedly discredited uh, medical science. Because... Being online, you know, all day long, I found that if I just open a window and I have a full, like a couple windows in the house and I have a full flow of it, of fresh air, I don't get like hardly any of the negative effects of, you know, whatever, like that EMF exposure, you know, the greasy skin, all of the different things that you get from, from being in front of a computer screen mm-hmm. all day long. I, I'm much more vitalized and I don't get that, uh, that like sort of screen hangover from being online too long. I, I agree with that a hundred percent. Yes. It's having the window something as simple as like having airflow in your house, mm-hmm. open a window. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the miasma thing, I, I, I don't know. Like I I'm open, I'm open-minded to that concept a lot more now than I was three or four years ago. Oh, I, after, yeah. after reading the, uh, the book, what really makes us ill. Um, I, I am, the entire concept of germ theory is in a, a complete state of doubt for me. Yeah. You know, I, oh, yeah. I, 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 I don't know. I, I don't 100% subscribe to the terrain theory that was being presented, but they made some very, very good points. And what was what effectively was a textbook on terrain theory that, uh, you know, I just I took for I, I took germ theory for granted. You know, yeah. I just, I just, well, everybody that- does. That's the whole, that's the whole point of it. We, I mean, like we've been, we've been listening to this stuff, you know, the Lysol commercial has been around for how long kills 99.9% of germs, right? How long well, I, I had, I had this book when I was a kid, this illustrated children's book about how awesome Louis Pasteur was, mm-hmm. you know, and how, and, and it had this little rabid, like this little rabid white dog in it. And he attacked this little French boy right? and, and, and smart Mr. Louis Pasteur comes along and, and figures out a way to save the kid's life or something. And, and it's but like, the reality oh, wow. is, yeah. the reality is, is this guy was experimenting on animals like Fauci had his little deal going over there in Madagascar. 
with the beagles with yeah the beagles, like yeah. he was doing horrific things right that yeah. uh, that that was not scientific in any way shape or form uh, he was no. like he was injecting water into the uh, the cracked open skulls of living cows and with goats. well poison like water that had fecal matter in it and that kind of stuff he yeah. was it was he was doing the, the nastiest types of experiments and again the children's book presents him as some sort of hero uh, beloved hero back in the past and if you go back and the thing that got me about the germ theory versus terrain theory is if you see the people who backed pasteur and all of his theories they happen to still be the people today who are the pharmaceutical industry so shabby strange. goy boys strange 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 how that worked, yep. how that be like that. But um, the miasma theory, um, well, between, you know, the noxious atmosphere and the internet and all of the um, the psychic vampires that are surround you constantly, like I make jokes about working for certain uh, construction companies. I, I'm, I'm an electrician and uh, certain big contractors. When you walk on the job, it's like the psychic vampire attaches itself to your neck and then sucks the life out of you all day while you're there because they just suck that bad to work for. Right. And but that's a real yeah. thing though. That's an actual thing. You you know this whole psychic, um, the psychic vampires, the uh, your surroundings affecting you. You know that's that's an actual thing. Yeah, vibes are real, man. Mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a vibe realist. It's all it's all there. Are you, you're the, a vibe there are these little, um, <laughs> these little uh, what are they like? Little gambling halls that I'm in the Balkans right now that, and they have just the worst most horrific vibes everywhere else is fine. You walk around, it feels great. It's I mean like this, this beach town, mm-hmm. but these, these crazy little CD and they have the, uh, what's that light? The, uh, like the blue the, light. Really, what's that? Yeah. That blue light. The, it's really bad. And you just, it's appalling vibes. And I would like to challenge anybody that, that says they don't believe in any of that. Um, uh, you know, like that's that, a place can sort of suck the life out of you. I would mm. challenge them to, to go into one of these places and hang out for a while. Well, here, totally here in my part it. of the continent wide strip mall in North Texas, they have digital gambling houses uh, yeah. and they're, they're in the darkest of strip malls. They're, they're, uh, yeah. they're 24 hours. You, you have the seediest human beings in there. And you, at the minute, the minute you walk in there, you can feel your soul leaving your body. You know, <laughs> yeah, uh, that's exactly what I mean. That's I right. had to, yeah, I had to, I had to deliver pizzas at one point in my life, and there was this one digital, digital blinky hall we would call them, and uh, I, I hated, I hated delivering pizzas there it, because it, it would, it would suck like ten minutes of my life away because these people never had the money ready, the tips sucked, and. You just felt so gross. You you felt like you had like a layer of of old stale caramel on your skin as yeah. you as you left. Like I felt like I needed a shower every time I left. Man, as far as the um, the theory of uh, of terrain, I actually found something pretty interesting that goes back to the history of the narrative about plagues and you know in in North mm-hmm. America. So here's this thing in um. In my, it's a sort of giant's research that I found. What is it? Yeah, you, there's there's been some research that show that manufactured food stuff, ca- you know, causes uh, immediate physical degeneration, especially in the teeth. Uh, and then there's there has been some speculation that the sort of mythical Indian plagues 
uh, these are kind of the foundational myths that, you know, if, if germ theory isn't real, like, how do you explain that? And there's some proof here in some of these documents. Native Americans had been trading with Westerners for generations before the more lethal variants appeared in the late 1700s. So if it was this smallpox, right, you would think that the most the most lethal variants would appear first, right? The most lethal uh, um, right. action, it would just happen. It would be like, oh, but no, it actually happened down the line. So it makes more sense that there was this, some degeneration that was occurring because of the food that they were eating. Hmm. Um, and then, and this was often after the breakdown in their culture as well, the decimation of hunting grounds and introduction of processed goods. And then even Columbus <clears throat> seemed to be aware that the cure for influenza was a change of terrain and fresh meat. So there, I have this quote there. Um, I'll just read a part of it. These people are conv- convalescing promptly because they only feel well in the lands of certain chieftains. It is true that if they had fresh meat to help convalesce, they would be standing up quickly with God's help. And most of them have recovered entirely by this time. So he was observing that the influenza that so-called that was this germ, this invisible germ, was cured by fresh meat or by, you know, them moving out of these sort of swampy areas that they were in. Hmm. And like, that's it. You know, you have it right there. You have the the testimony of the people during those so-called plagues saying, no, it's it's where we are. It's what we're doing. It's what they're eating. Yeah, it's yeah. diet and um, environment. Yeah, yeah I, a lot of, yeah, go ahead. I had a blue team like union boomer guy from work who was talking about how the colonists killed the Indians with smallpox blankets. And I, I I looked at him and I, I said, explain this to me. If smallpox wasn't discovered as a disease until the mid, the mid 1800s, how did colonists know that the blankets that they were giving these people that helped them find food, you know, they're giving these blankets to help keep them warm uh, were riddled with disease that would kill them. How, how do you how do you square that circle? I and I swear I almost saw smoke coming out of his his ears, like the the gears had yeah. completely grinded to a halt. And then, you know, he said some pablum response about indigenous people or something, and you know, we moved on. But you know, it, yeah. it, so he didn't it, give you it, an these answer. Narratives, basically, these narratives don't make sense on themselves. They they all end up being just at the root of it, probably some. Jewish anti-white mythology. Well, they obviously are. I mean, because germ theory wasn't even invented until what was it? I don't remember when was Pastor. We did that. When was germ theory? Nineteen something. I mean, right? Yeah, early nineteen hundreds. I would remember. say yeah. is when it really got it, it really got rolling with the Western the Western world. Sure. Okay. So yeah. So there's there, they didn't, germ theory hadn't been invented yet. Um, there was no way they would have known. But the blankets were what were causing it. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. It's literally, it, it is, it is an anti-white Jewish uh, screed. What do you want to call it? What do they, what do they call I, it? What do the Jews call it? Uh, a canard? A canard. Yeah. It's yeah. part of the sort of uh, pathologization of, um, of, you know. The colonizers. Of the age of, of the colonizers, of the sort of age of conquest. Mm. I think yeah. it's part of that, that broader project. Well, because the only people that have ever colonized, the only people that have ever conquested were uh, white people. Yeah. And nobody so else. A, that's a pretty easy thing to do. Right nobody there. else in the history you know, of ever just, has ever done it. 
there, just demon, demonize conquest and then you know you can you have your anti-white narrative there ready to go while you're doing conquest see how they do that yeah, <laughs> yeah. isn't it isn't it's it really cool. cool how they yeah it's crazy how nature be like that circle circling back uh to the psychic vampire narrative mm. schwab can you please explain to us what a tulpa is <laughs> a tulpa is basically you um sort of separating off part of your uh, i guess uh, your your psychic content sectioning it off and giving it a separate identity purposefully like like it's basically self-induced schizophrenia so That's you're like is. you're making like a mental doppelganger of yourself or or like yeah. an avatar is it is 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 that sort of what we're doing when we make avatars on social media we're creating a tulpa yeah yeah 100 percent. you're creating a sort of dim tulpa mm. um of yourself which is you know this is uh one of the first things that i wrote about um, with my account was that pro, you know profile based identity, prophilic identity, is a form of creating a, a sort of uh, tulpa. And for most people, this isn't going to really affect them that much, especially because like if they're using their face already, uh, there's an argument to be made that even that is sort of like a, a sort of disconnected version of themselves, and maybe you know. But I'm I'm not getting into that. But especially for a non that are role-playing, that have a brand, and you're online for, like, hours a day, yeah, that's definitely tulpification. <laughs> you, you're, that's a little sectioned-off part of your, you know, psycho-energetic economy that you've partitioned to be that thing. Oh, man. And it has, and it has a, a sort of – it, it initiates a parasitic life upon the greater system of your, of your psyche. And it lives – you know, it has its own existence – you you can kind of reset these things, you know, just sort of take, like I said, take a week off, month off. Uh, I change my profile picture quite often. Um, I change the name so that I don't do this. I don't culture a little homunculus in my brain. I've I've uh, I've often been curious. Uh, what is your uh, personal creative um, affection towards the two David Lynch, Kyle McLaughlin? Uh, appearances, uh, Ma, Deeb, I, Ma Deeb and Agent Cooper. I think my sort of um, political awakening, my idea of you know, this is what my my mutual Conan on Twitter calls cabal space. My sort of awakening and perception of cabal space of how um, of how people interact with each other in that in that way was from reading Dune. So I credit mm. that a lot. I'm, I have a lot of high affinity towards the book Dune and and the David Lynch movie, and and sort of David Lynch in general. Um, he's I feel like he is a he kn- he knows a lot of things, and he puts Easter eggs in his sort of like a Kubrick type character. Mm. As he puts a lot of things and symbols and and little things here and there into his uh, TV shows and films. I have a strong attachment to the Dune series. Uh, my father in the 80s had me read specific science fiction novels because he wanted me to extrapolate greater concepts and stuff from them. And one of them uh, that he gave me was Dune. And I was yeah. I was fascinated with the literary world of Dune, uh, the way that all the, the, the different machinations and setup and how it was all contingent upon worm shit. 
uh, every <laughs> the, only, the only way everything worked was by cultivating this very dangerous worm shit on the most inhospitable planet in the system, except for Sec- uh, Secundus, uh, you know where they where the emperor cultivated his army. But uh, can can we get okay? So like until we came across your stuff. We associated the name Schwab with the cartoon supervillain that the system gives us with the billionaire Carl Schwab, uh, Klaus Schwab. Klaus Schwab. Yes. Uh, what is the origin of your uh, your moniker, if you don't mind us asking? Um, it's uh, it's sort of the derived from uh, Schwabia, like New Schwabenland. Mm-hmm. I, have a, ah. I have a I have a lot of. Um, sort of curiosity about uh you know project high jump and and that kind of thing and um you know it's it's very romantic the idea that maybe there's (laughs) you know an entrance to agartha i'm a fan of sort of alternative cosmologies and things like that i like i like the the hollow earth uh mythology I, i think it's a very romantic idea that some of the uh the Nazis escaped into the hollow earth or that there's, you know, maybe some bases down there mm-hmm. or who knows what else is down there in uh, Antarctica. So I'm a big fan of that. Johnny, what was the name of that audio book that, that Grognak put in the prep chat uh, about a year and a half ago? And it was, a, it was like an old science fiction tale. Oh, the, about, hang on. Uh, uh, yes. The iron. Oh, damn it. Yeah. Like that was, that was you really fascinating. It, so there was like a, there's like a hole it. through, uh, Antarctica and and they went through on the other side and there was like an entire new continent with with mm. greater technology and stuff it was it was really fascinating yeah it was oh yeah. shit what's it called the iron the iron republic that's what it's called the iron republic I also, <laughs> I also like um there's this one sort of uh baron you know the sort of uh tycoon type figure Charles M Schwab mm. and I think that that he um he kind of symbolizes that alternative world. He was a big supporter of, of the dirigible. Um, he was also part of some of the world's fairs and things like that. And I think his vision for the future was, was one, he was one of those people that kind of got screwed during the, uh, during the great depression. So he was definitely not on mm. the, the the inside, right? And he ended up he ended up becoming bankrupt and destitute. But his his like, the things that he built, um, the things that he supported, I believe he represents that sort of suppressed timeline that you mm. know the good timeline that we could be in. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, had he, I agree had he with known that. what I was coming. Good thing he wasn't on the fake Titanic that they sunk with all the people that didn't want the Federal Reserve put in place. Yeah. That's another, yeah. Uh, they couldn't put all of them on the same boat, so you know. I think they tried. part of it was part of it was the. Uh, um, that's one of the purposes of the Great Depression was to get rid of that that competing wealth. What do you make? Oh, what about the theory that uh, they didn't actually kill Astor Guggenheim and the uh, the other guy? That was just actually just bullshit. But they did sink the the Oceanic or the Olympic. Excuse me, though. That the guy they didn't actually kill the oligarchs 
Um, that's just part of the, I mean, that's the, that's the, oh, yeah. that's the official narrative, right? So, I mean, we don't, we, around here, we, we don't trust any official narrative. I mean, the official narrative, narrative is that what Jacob Astor, uh, the, I forgot the other guys, but the, the ones that were on, the ones that were opposed to the Federal Reserve, they got killed. You know, that's like, cause, you know, that's like the open conspiracy, right? About the, about, about the Federal Reserve is that yeah yeah I mean so. they let Ron Paul live yeah Ron Let's Paul say, who tried to Ron Paul who with David Duke tried to overthrow the government of Dominica <laughs> so, you guys remember that so let's say you guys let's say if you had um, a photo of somebody like let's say deep fakes didn't exist right even if you did have a, mm-hmm. a photo and they only had low tech faking of uh, of images and you had a photo of you know, somebody that had died that was supposedly, you know, supposed to have died in, in prison or something, you know, that, that was, that had a lot of information on different people. Oh, speaking of died in prison, I hate to interrupt you, but F's in the chat for uh, Ted Kaczynski. Right, Ted today. Kaczynski. Yeah. Okay, let's use Ted Kaczynski. Let's say I, sure. I have a photo. Ted Kaczynski is still, a, that is sad. And, you know, I felt a, a little bit sad when I heard that earlier. But let's say he, I have a photo that proves he's still alive. Who's going to believe that, you know, um, even without deep fake technology, you can kind of sort of like, you just have a photo. That's all you have. So if you do see an aster, if somebody is like, you just, if the newspapers just say that a person is dead, a hundred percent, like there's no way, even if you see them walking around that you can do anything about it. Well, Uh, well, the, the societal uh, shit test for that Schwab was the Elvis sightings mm. in the tabloids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there you go. That's a good. That's a good example, right? Yep. People seeing Elvis. Maybe he was. Maybe there were several Elvises, right? During that whole whatever. Like if you like, imagine that Elvis was just a sort of well, a completely managed. I mean, uh, they all personality. Are. And then after it was over, after that that little you know, live role play thing that, that is done with Elvis is finished. All of the actors that played Elv- all the Elvises just get dispersed into, into society. They don't have to put them on a, a secret Island somewhere. You know, they don't, they you can just have them walking around. Right. They're just that guy that kind of looks like Elvis. Yeah, that's it. Yep. It's the same thing with the supposed uh, astronauts that, that got killed mm-hmm. during, except the, for the uh, one that didn't change his name at all. Yeah, like, yeah. They, they like brazen it's as absolutely fuck. inexplicable how many of them had identical twins. Yeah, eight of yeah. the like out of the eight people, five of them exactly. had twins. It's ridiculous numbers. Stop it. If if they did like one that had an identical, sure. like all right, we'll 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 pass one off as an identical twin. Right, but they got cocky. Right. They, they said it, we'll have like four or five. They were <laughs> and then literally we'll just have one of them that just has the same name. And then one of them will start a business in which uh, there's a cow on a rocket ship and the, uh, the, the, the smoke of the rocket ship is making the exact same shape that everybody is familiar with, with the photograph of the blown up challenger. It's just it's it's just ridiculous and uh, insidious and all of the things. They're like, they're like, we could tell people these people are on the we're on the challenger and they won't care. Yeah. Nope. Most people, most people don't even have the, you know, excess cognition to even to even consider things like that. Well, to be fair, Schwab, they saw it on television. They watched it in science class. They watched it, you know, in in, in seventh grade or eighth grade or whatever. I watched it in sixth grade. What was it? 
whatever that was. I watched it. I watched it at school. They stopped. Yeah, they stopped a, a class for that, right? Mm-hmm. For most, I was in, for most I people was in, in class. America. Yeah, we were in class. I was in class for that. It, it was it was a macro dose of crisis for ch- for children at, at, yep. during my time period. It was required watching, really, mm-hmm. by the state, and I think they did the same thing with nine eleven as well. As far as I know, I could, once nine uh, eleven happened, it was required to be on television for like the next forever. It, it was everywhere. It was it was po- the way I heard about nine eleven. I was in a Starbucks, and it was being piped in to the to the Starbucks and everyone's just sitting there in silence. And I walk in and I hear the the ridiculous whatever the routine that they're going through. And it sounded to me, it sounded hammy. It sounded like overly dramatic. Like this has been an attack on our freedom. They were using that kind of rhetoric in the first 30 minutes. People don't realize like this like all the rhetoric that you heard over the next four years was was on that day or within an hour mm-hmm. of the actual event, this this tragic attack on our freedom, things like that. And I heard that phrase and it sounded so absurd and like something from a comic book that I just sort of burst out laughing, laughing at it. I was like, what? And everyone in the, in the Starbucks turns and, and stares at me. And it was, the, yeah, for me, I don't think I was going to believe after I saw that I had that introduction to the, uh, to the event there was very little chance I was going to buy into it when I saw uh, the behavior of people. It's the way that people interact with narratives for me that I pay attention more than anything that, that kind of uh, red held me, you know, naturally throughout my life. It was the way that people glommed onto these stories that had nothing to do with them or mm-hmm. they, they shouldn't by all rights believe, but they just immediately do. And it always kind of freaked me out. I was like, why, why do you care? about this that much why are you so invested all of a sudden um you know so that was a well it's pretty funny it's the whole purpose of a psyop is to to get them invested and also for the back to the psychic vampires for the archons that gives them something to eat (laughs) you know i mean like you know you got to feed the archons got to get that negative energy out there and everybody viewing it is giving themselves consent to the ritual. Absolutely right. And they show us how they work it with, uh, what was it, uh, Monsters, Inc.? Right. <laughs> well, what's Powered funny is fear. recently I've been watching a TV series called What We Do in the Shadows, and they have a mm. character on there who is an actual psychic vampire, and he goes around office cubicles, and he, he, he bores people to tears with his conversation, and then he uh, he draws energy from them. Ah, we call and it's those... funny. He starts a new job and he turns to his new cube mate and he says, do you mind if I put on conservative talk radio? And the guy like like it doesn't show the guy's reaction. It shows the psychic vampire's reaction. And his eyes are like burning bright blue. Like he's <laughs> like he just sucks so much energy out of the guy by That's saying funny. that those people at work, we, we, we like to say that they, they put you in like a conversational headlock. And while they're while they're they have you in a conversational headlock, you can't get away, and they're they're sucking your your uh, your energy. You tend to not be able to get away from the psychic vampires sometimes. Like they'll start talking to you yeah. about something. Next thing you know, it's been fifteen minutes. Sometimes they end up as your significant other. Oh, I mean, <laughs> a lot of times. I mean, you know, it's, this is America. This is twenty twenty three. 
I mean, I mean, some of us know how to pick them, right, Johnny? Right. Yes. This is one of the reasons I don't do spaces anymore. I just have that feeling that, you know, a lot you get a lot of passive attention, and and I'm not I'm not sure who is out there. It's mm-hmm. such a weird dynamic to have that to have that sort of immediacy at the same time, but it's all still very disconnected. And then, of course, you get people that will try to uh, join the space and, and then feed off the space as much as they possibly can. They'll start to grandstand. And it's it's a very chaotic um, format. I, yeah, I, I sort of – a lot of people just refuse to, to participate in it. A lot of bigger accounts are, are wiser than me, but I thought I could tame it. And I did a lot of spaces, sometimes, you know, three, four, five, six hours long. And I got into it for a while, but I've learned my lesson. You, you, there's too many, you know, as you say, psychic vampires out there uh, that are that are really just looking at it as a feeding ground. Yeah, it's like, what's the risk reward for contribution to the the, the overall conversation? You mm-hmm. know, at, at some point, at some point where where are the returns diminishing? Uh, I've noticed that some, you know, with some of these spaces, it seems to be like uh, gotcha opportunities to somehow yeah. uh, take certain accounts down a peg. You know, some of these accounts, they they're they're taking it upon themselves to have a discussion about X, Y or Z. And then you have somebody come around with like, you know, it, it, it it's a phenomenon that's not unfamiliar to people who had radio shows. Can, can they would have callers come in, They would have callers call in and say, uh, you know, they would call in, say they're calling in for this reason. But then once they're on the line, you know, then they would say, you know, something really effed up. And the difference with the space is you don't have a dump button. <laughs> mm. So for those of us that don't do the Twitter machine, can you explain spaces real quick? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um. The space is just a functionality where you can go straight to voice. You can have people join. You can have a co-host. Um, you can get, I guess with my accounts, I get anywhere from 100 to, to 200. But sometimes it gets up to like 500 concurrent listeners in a space. And it starts to get kind of hectic because it, it there is a lot of energy in that. Having mm-hmm. like a, a crowd of... of you know, 500 virtual entities, let's call them okay. <laughs> out there <laughs> listening sure. to you, you know, like we were talking about Tulpa vacation earlier, like, so that, you know, it's people in their sort of disconnected Tulpa state. Well, you think of they're people as their avatar and w- once they're online, you know, once you know somebody, your mutuals, whoever they are, people you don't like, you think of them as their avatar. When you see their avatar, you think of that person. Yeah. yeah. So they're, and they're I've, Tulpa you know, fans. one of the reasons I talk about this is because I've sort of been a lurker and, a, and an observer of of Twitter since around 2015. And I've noticed how, especially that first batch of people from 2016, how the attention, the attention economy and the, and the you know, meme magic and meme wars and all of that ruined a lot of these people. Like they, uh, I'm not going to name names, but some of these people became very twisted afterwards or they became very... Um, like mineralized, <laughs> ossified. You know, you had somebody that was kind of really insightful, and they just turned into this, uh, um, this sort of object. Mm. Uh, and and I think that has a lot to do with uh, 
Twitter as a as a, like as a mechanism, sort of like this washing machine that just sort of conditions people over, you know, a period of a few years. And I saw that happen over and over again with a lot of accounts that I liked and how the how it changed and you know their their they basically became this brand. Mm. And my my Twitter mentor, I guess, like my mm. sort of patron I guess that retweeted a lot of my earlier first threads. Uh, he talked about that quite a lot. He talked about having the dangers of becoming of becoming a brand. And, you know, he would say, like, delete all your tweets, do things like reset your account, change your um, your avi. Like, he didn't go into it in detail. Liter- I like to get, I guess I get a little pedantic about these things because <laughs> I kind of want people to be, to get as many people as possible, like, to understand these things, you know. Right. Uh, whereas, whereas he was like, I'm just going to say it and if you, you either get it or you don't. But I was listening, you know, and uh, and it really... And he's since like he hasn't been on Twitter for like six months now at this mm-hmm. point. So he just will that ability to just leave it, you know, that's pretty important. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I have completely given up on a lot of social media. Um, I, I see how it goes, you know. Uh, so basically, so a space is basically like some sort of a sorry. live stream, sort of like a live voice chat. That's what you're saying. Yeah, that's all. Yeah, okay. I'm sorry. Okay. I went off on a tangent. Oh, there. no, that's cool. But uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, that's uh, that's what a space is. It's um, okay. It's just right live on. voice chat with a live audience. Well, that's cool. So yeah, so basically, it's it's basically like a Twitter live stream. All right. Well, listen, let's take a quick break. Um, I know DB's got to take the chupacabras out, um, and uh, we will be back. We'll listen to some music. Did you want to do the Godflesh DB? Uh, yeah, because the, of course- uh, the new the new Godflesh album just came out yesterday. It's called Purge, mm-hmm. and it's uh it's very visceral. All right. And the the song's called Mythology of Self. Oh, all right. We're going to listen to that, and we'll be back with more Schwab.
All right, everybody, we are back. This is still the Paranormies. I'm still Johnny, and we're here with Dogbot and Schwab. And we are digging through his Schwab stack. And um, his latest is Anamnesis. Is that how you pronounce it? Anamnesis, yep. yes. And that came out the last day of May. And um, it's another one that's like a very long dude. Your your stuff is a, is it's great read, but good lord, it takes a, it, a lot of ch- you got to read it in chunks. <laughs> I like it yeah, a lot, though. I like it a lot. I might try to experiment with, um, you know, doing things in sections, mm-hmm. like sectioning it out. But um, you know, everybody says that they like the long form. That's one of the things they go to. Uh, go to me for is that you know the lack of like a really in-depth um like drilling down on the subject is mm-hmm. what a lot of my audience really like and i'm kind of one of the only people that does that these days you're like the dean of the deep dive <laughs> yeah i just i just keep going like i i get caught up in it and it's um it's fun for me and i just like the, that feeling of drilling down on a subject until mm-hmm. you know we really sort of dig up the the skeletons. Yeah. See, the problem with me is, unfortunately, I don't have the chunks of time necessary to sit down and read all of your stuff all at once. So I have to do mm. it in chunks. Um, I like the way you do. You do break it up, though. You have you have your little your breaks and stuff like with this one. It goes down from the top. Uh, I scrolled way past it. Uh, good Lord, it is long. <laughs> yeah, uh, Anamnesis is a long article, but mm. I, I had to read it in, in three sep. I had to read it in three separate chunks because I, I just... I wanted to definitely I definitely wanted to absorb the information that was being presented and I find the concept of time to be infinitely fascinating. Mm. We talk about it all the time how time is not real and or and or if it is real it is a fluid concept it's not a solid construct. We have a tagline that we end the show with which is time travel makes you gay. Oh <laughs> well, travel makes you gay. Yeah, that's a, a joke, but kind of, I don't know, not, but uh, it comes from a blog that we had a long time ago where that time, it's one of the, uh, one of the precepts of time travel is that it does make you gay. So you can't go back in time and become your own grandfather unless, oh, I see. Yes. That makes sense. So unless of course you use a fair gay cage. There was a whole blog about it. It was, it was hilarious. <laughs> and <Fair laughs> Oh, the Faraday cage. Yeah. Oh, we had we had schematics and all. It was great. But uh, yes, now it's just time travel makes you gay. I think nowadays that's just holding up a cross and praying whenever you're in the public. Whenever you're in the public square, when, the actual public square, not Twitter. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yes. The what is this? One. The allegory of Xenocrates Cave. I like that. Your little headings. Those are great. So, like I said, you split up. You do split up these these long form articles with those. So, I don't know that you do need to break it up because you do have stopping points and places where you can, you know, pick up later on or whatever. And you can almost read them from these little time is biological. You could start there and just read that part, and it stands by itself pretty much. Yeah, I like you can think of it like that as a series of interconnected vignettes that Mm -hmm. that kind of um, weave into each other Mm -hmm. for sure. What is anamnesis? Uh, so a- anamnesis is the act of um, like recollecting memory, uh, or or you could think of it as pieces of your soul, like reintegrating your soul. Um, so I guess you could think of the moment of 
you know, sort of uh, awakening in the flesh, like when you, whenever that, you know, none of us can remember uh, really our first five years of life, right? Most of us don't. Some some do. Some can remember like till they're, they're three, but there's long sp- spaces where they don't remember anything. So you can imagine there's this sort of also uh, forgotten spaces within, you know, that are even deeper than that, you know, pre-birth, for example. And a lot of the, that's an idea basically that wisdom comes from recognizing that memory within you and, and recollecting it, pull, you know, uh, reintegrating it into your consciousness. Sort of uh, ancestral memory, um, maybe memories of past existences, memories of uh, sort of the, the transcendent plane. Of there's a lot of different ways to to frame it, but basically it's a different view of of memory and of wisdom. It's a sort of a re a re uh, cognition uh, by which the soul understands itself and it sort of progresses and evolves in this lifetime. Right, I because at first I saw it, I thought it was I I don't have the new album, but I thought it might have been a song title off the new Tool album. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like that, doesn't it? Right. Uh, so it was it was the name of one of my f- favorite bands, uh, Scorn. It was the name of an album of it was a compilation of all their singles and EPs. Oh well, that's actually appropriate then for a compilation <laughs> for. So yeah. so you guys know like Plato's Cave, right? Absolutely. So you yes. have like a, so you, you can think of Plato's Cave as being a temporal cave, right? A narrow temporal frame where. Uh, you exist sort of within this like little sphere of what you can recall. And as you move through, uh, through time um, that fluctuates, you know, it toward like your memory is probably as good as it, as it's ever going to be in your mid twenties. And then it starts to diminish again uh, as you get older and it becomes to the point where it's just like, you're sort of swip- remembering dreams and it's interacting with your waking life and you, and you become senile. And that's a very similar existence to the memory of an infant or a toddler. And uh, that the process of anamnesis would be just to try to expand that, that memory beyond the local self to non-local memory. And I guess you could think of it as, you know, remembering past lives, but I think it's more about like remembering platonic in the platonic sense. It's like, remembering archetypes you could think of it as like that as well like um like i've had moments of meditation of introspection where i suddenly remembered the feeling of the pantheon of like what zeus really is right you read about zeus you read about the myths and it's it's all dead knowledge you don't really have a connection to it but inside of you there is there is like zeus is inside of you Mm -hmm. somewhere you can remember that if you're, especially if you're European, it's like in your, it's in your DNA, it's in your blood memory. And you can recollect that and, and you get that feeling of, oh, okay, that's what it is. You know, it's this ordering principle. It's, it's the lawgiver. It's, you know, you know, lightning rules all it's Zeus. Mm. And you feel that in your, in your blood and your mind. And it's a, it's a different kind of sensation. Do you think it's, that's, it's, 
Go ahead. I was saying, do you, th- do you think that's how Philip K. Dick was able to see yes. the Roman Empire and all the... the 100%. Ro- yeah. But, I mean, more or less, yeah. Yeah. And, it, and I think it's different for everybody, but it's... um, Yeah. It, he was experiencing probably one of the the higher forms of anamnesis that one possibly can, where it's like full immersion. Man, that had to be, and probably. I wonder if. Well, I'm pretty sure it being Philip K. Dick, there were drugs involved. I I'm not sure. I think he uh, had his experience right after um, he had a tooth, like he had dental work done. And there's a lot of theories about like whether or not he it was something that was given to him while he was um, getting dental work, or mm. if it was something that was like put into his tooth, something like that. Or you know, there's a lot of different theories about what it was. But yeah, what do you mean by I, put I something in his tooth? Maybe drugs might have been involved. It's when possible. you say by putting something in his tooth, like maybe one of Alex Jones's father's CIA tooth implant creations, <laughs> yeah, you know, one of those things. Right. I'm not. I'm. I'm agnostic where all of that comes from. I'm mostly just reading, his, like the, uh, his work. And right. I'm. I'm. I'm, just, like that. I'm joking, obviously, but yeah. Um, but yeah, who knows? But he did. Like he visualized the Roman Empire and everybody. Romans, like he would see people, and he would see Romans, right? He wouldn't see he wouldn't see the people of whatever year was the seventies or something. I was fascinated with the idea that he was at a child's daycare and he saw like a slave pit, Mm. you know, and like that, like that was more visceral because a a, a child's daycare is very similar to just the beginnings of uh, setting up children for a concept of whatever this modern slavery is. You know the the parents are too the parents are too self consumed with their own careers to be able to raise their own children, so they hand them off to these strangers at these daycare centers, and just and then then it goes on to public school, and you know then then the workforce where you're 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 more and more detached from your family from your roots. It is I a, agree. It is a form yeah. of slavery. Oh, yeah, I agree with it. That was my experience of being put into public school. Anyway, that's how I felt about it. I was very like, um, yeah, I, I felt and behaved as if I was in a captivation, <laughs> captivation scenario when I was a, a kid. I was like, I, I was silent and sullen. I didn't talk to teachers. Like, I kept to myself. I was like, what is going on here? I, I thought it was very, from a very young age, I, I always felt that it was very alien and uh, bizarre. Good. Yeah. And my public school experience was my creativity and my, in my, my individual curiosity was, you know, they were trying to beat it out of me and I was clinging to it for dear life. You know, I, I remember the way that I was punished after I was done with an algebra test and I, I, I was done 20 minutes sooner than the next person. And so I chose to spend my free time instead of staring at a wall, I chose to spend my free time doodling on the back of uh, my notes I'd already turned in the test itself, and yeah. I remember being uh, harassed and reprimanded by the teacher and having points deducted from my test because I had chosen to spend the free time that I had because I had finished I had finished the test, and I chose to spend it in a creative fashion instead of whatever I was whatever I was expected to do, stare at a wall. It's not like I could have left and gone outside to get some fresh air with my free time. Mm. You know, and uh, it's, it's, you know, that, that was a, 
that was a, a very important experience with the public school system. It is, it, it is a prison system. If you look at um, unschooling, right, and the way that works, uh, and I've, I got to observe this, I got to see how it works, and basically what happens is the kid naturally starts to develop an interest in various topics, like whatever it is, it, and then in order to understand that topic, they end up learning the ancillary uh, and, you know, whatever skill it is, whether it's math or geography, along the way of researching and, and um, approaching those topics. So, like, every topic that they study, you can see it's almost like a process of anamnesis in itself. It's like this sort of self-recognition and uh, discovery of capability. And it, it's a very organic way of learning that is organic to the individual, whereas you could see that public schooling is very machinic and it's very arbitrary in, in the way that it teaches individuals things. And it's, um, and I think, yeah, it causes a lot of damage to the person in their sort of individuation process and their, in their process of anamnesis. Oh. So yeah, you, you could see those being kind of diametrically opposed systems of, of learning, you know, the unschooling process where a kid is left to their own devices and that sort of top down, uh, you know, machinic style, very heavy, you know, you do this at this time, uh, we're going to rush you, we're going to bust you across the school, we're going to, yeah. It's definitely uh, two ways of doing things. Oh, most definitely. I mean, you can see, you've seen the hundreds of memes where they show the kids, all the kids going into a school and in their minds, they all have a different shape. But as they go by the teacher, the teacher cuts the shape into a circle. Everybody has a circle by the time they're out. That's, that's the whole point of compulsory education in the West that the Rockefeller created. Yeah. Uh, you know, school 100%. system wasn't to create. Uh, wasn't to create a nation of thinkers. He wanted a nation of workers. I mean, all of this is this is all documented that this is what the way that they created the the uh, education system in the West, and um, you know, and and we've we you see it a lot jokingly, but I mean, it's not a joke. But nobody's going to teach nobody's going to educate you in in a fashion that will teach you enough to overthrow them, and that's just not how it works, right? So, the education Absolutely. system that we have is very very. It's terrible. Let's just put it that way. It's getting worse every year. I mean, have you ever read? I can't remember the name of it. Was it uh, the uh, the deliberate dumbing down of America? I can't remember which education yeah, secretary yeah. wrote that. But yeah, I read that. I, there was another guy. I forgot his name. Um, but yeah, I was into a lot of that about ten years ago. Oh, that's about yeah. That that's about stuff. right. <laughs> I mean, it's about twelve, twelve, fourteen years ago. Yeah. I was about yeah. when I was reading uh, like Catherine Austin Fitz and the the black space budget stuff, and going to see Henrik Palmgren from Red Ice and the UFO and the the, the UFO conference. <laughs> it's about that's about twelve years ago. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder if John Dewey was a war criminal. Ooh. John Dewey, the the founder of the philosophical movement of pragmatism, the Dewey Decimal System. Yeah. Hmm. Possible. A war criminal? How? Uh, well, just the way the way that he the way that he wanted to mass mold and shape kids' brains using mm. the public school system, like the, like okay. uh, taking it away from the individual schools from different, you know, oh, making yeah. it like making it like one mass system. The standardization are, of schools, yeah. There are some tenuous connections with I think with Dewey and with the same 
mindset and maybe even with some of the people, the, the sort of uh, founding ideologues that were behind that incepted MKUltra. I think that they're very, you could probably make a spaghetti board chart <laughs> where you connected to uh, John Dewey to some of these people. hundred percent. You know what? I think I'm going to, we're going to look into that. I think I, my instincts are pretty good. Usually when it comes to stuff like that, I, this, a lot of it's, once again, it's based on half remembered things that I came across while, while researching articles. So yeah. there's probably something there. The guy I was thinking about was John Taylor Gatto. That's who I watched. I watched like, several videos that were recorded of him talking and i think maybe this could have been a formative experience for me where he basically what he did was he he looked at the original documents of the things that people said that created the the education system and what was their intent Mm -hmm. and yeah it's exactly like the things that you said they 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 straight out said that it was to you know like crush individuality things like that it um to form and shape people's minds to uh create and engender certain myths, um, like cultural narratives, things like that. You also find that in the some of the organizers of the World's Fairs as well. Um, there have been a, a couple, I think there was one video I saw on YouTube where they found these little notebooks uh, that were given to people, like, and you were supposed to, you were, you had homework essentially. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what is that so crazy? I thought these things were supposed to be entertainment. Right. And the entertainment aspect came later, like, like several, like iterations later of the World's Fair. And it was really primarily an instructive event. It was mm-hmm. like, for you to, this is the way things are now. Mm-hmm. It was, it was in a sense, a great reset of uh, the American, like, you know, American mythos. Oh, the of, West in general, the because they did, them, they did, well, they did them in France. They did them in, in England too. So it was the West. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was international. Sure. Yeah. But, um, I kind of only focused on the American side of it. I but, love uh, yeah, talking you know, about the hundred percent. It was international and it was more to do with the industrialization. And like I said, that what I was kind of the theme of anamnesis as well is this sort of entering into the machinic time and leaving behind organic time. Hmm. That's a that's an interesting concept, though. But yeah, what now? The difference is what one is natural and one is basically a clock. Well, yeah, one would be based on the sort of uh, the cycles. Like one is cyclical. Mm-hmm. Um, the the sort of you've heard of like the Kali Yuga things like that. Uh, the Great Ages, uh, the cycles of the stars, the moon. You have your own circadian rhythms in your body. Right. You have uh, sleep-wake cycles. Your cells have energetic cycles. Um, all around us, we have this sort of rhythmic, cyclical, uh, sort of organic time. And then, you know, and that's one level. Mm-hmm. And that is the sort of natural, historic relationship with time. And even that is sort of an illusion. Like, ultimately, time doesn't really exist, right? It's just a sort right. of um, right. uh, a shadow on on. Plato's cave. That's really what it is. It's a sort of secondary impression and epiphenomenon. What, you know, but yeah, it does. Our experience of it, though, can get slippery and you will have these time slip phenomena. You, you know, you're um, navigating through this uh, experience of, of this thing. Yeah, it can cause you to sort of flow back in time or 
forward in time or to expand um, expand outwards in time where you're seeing sort of things coming and going in a, in a, a similar to a person sort of going up into a helicopter and just being able to see more of the terrain around them. I love this concept of the domain of ultimate existence. You know, that you mentioned in the article that every story and every film that you were captivated by as a child or, or just even an adult, yeah, like it brings you, it brings you closer to this thing that you're familiar with. Like it's, it's something, it's, it's something that's deep within you that you understand and know. Yeah. I'll bring this to, I'll kind of mix it in with something that's been happening recently. Like the reason why these movies haunt us, that, that they captivate us. We have these words they do. They capture our attention. They capture our imagination. And we do, we, we do live inside of them afterwards. Like I lived inside of never ending story for a very long time. And it affected, yeah, it affected the way I grew up and the way that I saw the world. And it could be still affecting me now, but, um, but I would leave school just like the main character and go to the park or to the library and read by myself. I would, you know, play hooky and all things like that. So I would act out these things. My attitude towards people around me was, was kind of uh, synchronized with that character. Did um, you, did you eat the entire apple like a barbarian? <laughs> and I don't think I've ever eaten food the way he eats food. So, uh, like I, I remember being horrified as a kid as he ate no. the core, the core and the seeds and everything. And I you was like, what is going the, on here? You, you no, got to eat it from the bottom. definitely symbolic. A hundred percent. And this is what I was going to get to within those movies. There's these things that they put in. And I don't know to what degree they do them consciously or, you know, whatever system is in place to, to put these things in here. I think a lot of people that make, these kind of iconic movies probably are very aware of uh, alchemy and philosophy and metaphysics and things like that, or they are experiencing their own anamnesis and this stuff is just bubbling up effervescing from within them when they write these stories and make these, uh, these works of art. Anyway, but the reason they grab, one of the reasons they grab us is because of these, um, these sacred symbols that are sort of like pillars that are holding up the film in space and time for you to walk inside of that descend down from the domain of ultimate existence, that uh, the realm of the sacred, the sort of latent realm. And we as humans are sort of naturally drawn to that latent realm because it is like, we're trying to remember ourselves. We're trying to you know recognize what we truly are, like reassemble all of these lost disparate components of the self and, um, you know, become what we truly, you know, our, our higher ultimate existence. So yeah, that, that's how they get you. That's how they, 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 they pull you in and keep you inside is with these various symbols. And today that is still done with like these really ham fisted, uh, Netflix shows they will do that. Like in the first episode, um, or the first three episodes, they'll, try to pull people in, but it's done very clumsily and it's still like, it fails to capture most people, but they, I don't know. I don't know if they even care, but they'll, you'll see that before they really turn on the, the, the message, as they say, uh, they will, 
they'll try to appeal to that domain of ultimate existence. They'll try to throw in symbolism and things that really resonate with the audience in the, you know, sometimes it's the first 30 minutes of the show and then they'll turn it on. I think they might've, I think they might've done that in the past. And I think that they've given up on that and they don't care anymore. I think, well, I I don't know. I think they did that magnificently with stranger things. Yeah. That's like, it just, just even with like, even with the opening synth, like, like the perfectly chosen synthesizer sounds for the intro, like it, it immediately appealed to a very large segment of the audience that, that misses the eighties. And perhaps mm. even the mm. early '90s, mm. like it was, it was completely engineered towards my generation, and towards my gen, like not just my generation, but my demographic. I mean, the fact that the kids were all playing Dungeons and Dragons and riding bikes, and the, and even the and even the fat kid wasn't really that fat. Right, the fat kid was just chubby. Yeah, the fa- yeah, because like what's the deal? We had oh, what's the deal? Friend, Homer Simpson like, was. In retrospect, our fat friend was just chubby. Right, Homer like, Simpson they- was two hundred and forty pounds, and that was considered morbidly obese back in nineteen ninety. But uh, <laughs> you, you know, they do still try that, and, and I, I think about the uh, Paul Scholas Lindy Man concept of stuck culture, mm. and uh, you know he 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 talks about this very well. Uh, I've always liked his. I've always liked his tweets and stuff, but when he points, he'll point out like he he had this he had this uh chart this this image of all the latest video games that are coming out, and all of them were some form of remake or extension of classical titles that people have already experienced from thirty years ago. Well, you know, the most popular Nintendo Switch game right now is another version of Zelda. Right, and that well, that's how it is with everything, with all the media. There's there hasn't been any good media produced in in probably decades now, uh, and that's that goes for television, that goes for for cinema, if you can even call it cinema anymore. It goes for video games, uh, yeah, it goes for all the things. There's there's no more creativity. We used to have yeah, conversations. That's like that line, that line out of that line out of that uh, uh, Matt from Quantum of Conscience brought up the uh, the guy the um, the Merovingian. In the, in the last Matrix movie, <clears throat> now he's he's a he's a homeless bum, and he, he talks about how uh, social media and modernity has ruined us. You know, we used to have conversations, we used to have art, we used to have all these fine things. Now we have you know Zuckerfuck and whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like I'd like to read this little section from the article. Uh, in metaphoric tales and allegorics allegorical ciphers, there exist certain fundamental structures or archetypes that originate from the cosmic order's principles. These principles function less as symbols of existence and more as crystalline seeds or blueprints for the evolution of existence. Um, I found that to be incredibly insightful. Uh, can, can, you, can you expand on that concept a bit, please, Schwab? Yeah, so if you look back, the idea of time as being sort of organic has very deep roots. You have the, um, the sort of neoplatonists and they have this idea of um, you're at the moment of your inception of your of your conception you're sort of uh, seeded with a certain kind of time, right? A certain speed, a certain rhythm, a certain vibe. Let's say, right? Like uh, for example, everybody born in the '80s had a very similar vibe, and that and we're sort of nostalgic for that vibe. But uh, Paracelsus talked about to the it it is so powerful and so defining that medicines that used to work 
in the ancient world no longer do. He was like studying all these things, these ancient medicines, and he was experimenting with them. He was this alchemist. And uh, they would fail to work. So his project was to create medicines that worked in this age. Hmm. So that idea of... Um, certain things being more they're not just these sort of dry symbols but they are they're they're these uh these these blueprints that are sort of unfolding in our flesh and, in our, and through time and space in our lives they are they're kind of like a yeah like a living crystal that's inside of us that's uh that's unfolding it's it's not just uh uh this you know, the cross isn't just this two lines. It's <laughs> it is this this crystalline seed or blueprint for the evolution of the next two thousand years. That um, you know, manifesting in time and space through the actions of the saints, through you know, Western civilization, all the things that we that you know that we know and uh, experience around us today. And you could say the same thing for Rome as well, which is why the hallucination or the experience of Philip K. Dick of seeing Rome mm -hmm. because Rome is still everywhere. Rome is still here. Oh, with still, us absolutely. And in that sense, um, his vision is clearer, right? Um, he is, he is, uh, regaining his, his temporal sight, his, uh, ability to sort of, you know, the precognition and retrocognition is healing itself. Whereas most of us sort of are, you know, exist in the sort of dim tide of the present moment, you know, sort of breathing in and out, you know, one meal to the next, paycheck to paycheck. That's that mm -hmm. very well, we're taught you know, to live low, moment to moment, you know, low root existence yeah. that we are all, you know, because we exist within machinic time. That natural organic process of like re of remembering who we are as you grow up as a child, like oh okay, this is what I'm good at. This is this is what I'm into. You know, we do it to a certain extent. Like I I gravitated towards books. Like I said, I would flee school to read things like that. I would flee the machinic time so I could just spend time in the park. Uh, you know, reading science fiction mm -hmm. and. Um, so I guess I had little pieces and moments of anamnesis of, of figuring out who and what I was. And uh, yeah, so that in that sense, the, the symbols that we deal with aren't just, you know, dry paper. Well, they can be, and I think they are for the, for the midwit, they are just dry paper and they're just processing <laughs> this stuff into a pulp and then regurgitating it for, you know, whatever pats on their head or for money. Mm -hmm. And there's no real organic process happening in that, in that activity, that habit that they're doing that the, the midwit or the, you know, the good student does is just a result of trauma of, of being conditioned by the machinic apparatus of, um, you know, state, state education. The the eighties had some very fascinating immersive fantasy movie experiences. Mm. Uh, they tried to recreate that, that sort of uh, never ending story vibe with Willow. It didn't, it kind of fell flat, but I enjoyed, oh God, I enjoyed yeah. that much as a child, but I remember I got my hands on the book, the never ending story, whenever I was uh, in junior high. 
And I remember reading it and it was so much more of an adult book. Mm. You know, like they had really, they really had to work very hard to make it a children's story. And even as a children's story, there was certain, there was still a certain level of trauma to oh, the climax of that story. It definitely, you mean you, you, you didn't cry when the horse went in the, like, oh, no, yeah. like one of my favorite memes of the last year was somebody said, uh, give this, give this toy to, give this toy to a Gen Xer to ruin their birthday or Christmas. And it was uh, it was an action figure of of Artax uh, submerged up to yeah. its neck. Oh, and- man. Yeah. <laughs> it's bad. Yeah. No, it's interesting that you say how, like, they worked hard to make this very adult-themed story um, and, and to give it to kids. Yeah, the, I, I have some people talk about that. I've heard some people talk about the never-ending story as being some kind of um, like mass trauma event, you know, it, to, to sort of pull you in. There is a lot of very heavy metaphysical symbolism that's in that movie. Well, that's a very, uh, well, to, that's a very standard metaf- tech. That's a very standard technique of <clears throat> like Disney, for example, the, mm. and that's a tr- MK ultra thing, the trauma and then the release of the trauma, you know, the princess gets capped, gets kidnapped. And then the, along comes the, the prince to save her or whatever. Right. And that's how, you have the yeah. trauma and then the release. Uh, the never-ending story has that same thing. Um, the, most most movies, most kids' movies do, you know, and it's and that's how and that's one part of the conditioning process um, of the trauma-based mind control that most children's media is really. There's a little bit of a Luciferian almost like undercurrent of the never-ending story in that uh, we're all our own gods. And our own personal imaginations in some places creating this vast world. Mm. And that yeah. as our imaginations die off, this vast world is is suffering and dying because of it. We're just these like we're these blind it, each one of us is our, our own blind idiot god walking around. Like Well, I mean yeah. Yeah, but that's kind of the the point is that I, I think is that um imagination itself like you know, like now nobody has an imagination anymore. Disney does all your imagineering for you, right? You can't, kids can't. Kids don't have their own ideas anymore. They have. They just mimic what they see in their in their in their media. So, like, yeah, you have you have one thing that is like you can think of things as temporal objects, right? Mm-hmm. That either uh, cooperate with the human ability to retain in, uh, memory, to experience amnesis. They kind of maybe. You could think of as um, you could think of them as augments. Um, they're still crutches, but they still sort of, you know, you can live with them, right? The the um, the technology of writing does reduce memory, but it still it still allows you to engage with the text, with your imagination, and with you, uh, and you have to sort of flesh out those worlds yourself. Whereas some of these newer forms of uh, uh, temporal objects of sort of tertiary reservoirs of memory, like film, uh, you know, the internet, YouTube, all of these other things are strictly parasitic. They don't like they, they, they remove your ability to remember anything and people, people's memories. It happens to me too. If I I have a harder time reading books, sitting down and making the time to read a whole book, uh, that's really hard for me to do now. I have to kind of like 
take myself out of the internet for a while to, to do that. And yeah, I, I, I honestly think people are not reading books anymore. I, th- I think 90% of people are just, they're just lying. <laughs> you are correct. They say they're, they're reading. I'm going to, I'm going to be a hundred percent honest. My book reading <laughs> has sucked lately. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know I think what entirely recently. has been different about my routine, but like, I have I have not been finishing books at the rate that even recently, as in the past like two or three years, I've been finishing them. So I I totally understand what you're saying. And yeah, when when people post online like a stack of books that they say they're going to read, and nobody ever reads yet it. Their tweets go from 10 a.m. in the morning to 10 p.m. at night. I yeah. I think you're a liar. Right. <laughs> no, I get my problem is I have an extensive library that I'm never going to get to read until I retire. Uh, it's I work too much to read to read the books that yeah. I have, and and that's one of my one of my problems. Uh, I I think reading paper books has gone away quite a bit. Uh, I I think that the Kindle concept um, is still fairly. Um, I mean, it's still being utilized, but I think a lot of that is your Barnes and Noble fluff and stuff books, like your Michelle Obama becoming. It's not like actual books; it's just mm. fluff bullshit. Um, Sisterhood of the Traveling Libtard pants, pants, whatever. Yeah, that's stupid shit. But uh, actual books? No, I don't believe a lot of people are reading actual books. I find it extremely hard to read to read books recently. I'm I used to be an avid reader. I was much like Bastion myself. I used to just. I didn't go run away to the park. I would just run to my room and you know and read in my room. But yeah, I was like, I, I was the kid in the corner reading a book all the time. Um, you know, I, I we we had a uh, we had a baseball game going one time, and I think second base was a was uh, a comic book, and I got in trouble for reading second base while we were playing. So like you know that's the kind of I, I love to read, but I but now. When I pick up a book, I get about halfway through a chapter and something comes up. I hear a ding. I got to go check this. There's this. There's a phone call. There's a kid doing something. There, you know, so. You could think of it like this. The, the, the aggregate of all of these things around us, the media environment, films, mm-hmm. movies, games, this, this vast the system of temporal objects reordering the flow of time. You know, you call it the media sphere. That's what mm-hmm. that is, right? So the, the media sphere that we're in right now we talked about the image of man earlier, you know, how it sort of affects us. We, it, we've become much more insect-like with our attention flows. Oh. And that is what's happening. All of us. This is happening to all of us. So um, <laughs> I know that's sort of a horrible thing to say. but <laughs> No, it's, 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 it's no. not that it's a horrible thing to say. It's, it's, a, it's one of those unconscious truths mm-hmm. that just yeah. like it just it hits you in the gut. It's a legitimate yeah. inconvenient truth. So when you say <laughs> we become in we become insect like now, you're are you comparing us to uh to like the Han Chinese or what are you what do you what are you actually saying? No, no. no I'm um, joking, but no, yes, not more reptilian, say? right? No, no they're well, insects, dude. No, the Han that, Chinese that are clearly like a hive of ants. Hives, yes. But, I would say uh maybe a little bit more like a hive of bees. <laughs> but uh you know i don't want to make you guys feel that bad about uh oh, what's no. happening uh i did live I did live in china but that is a whole other order of um like machinic time and, and, mm-hmm. and processing gonna, that has happened to say china, my, china my condolences yeah right so that's <laughs> but, glad you glad you escaped alive yes with yeah, all of your kidneys yeah. you got you, you got out of there with both your kidneys good all right man i i 
I remember seeing people, you want to talk about time flows? I've met people that were living there for two, three years, young guys, and they had gray hair already just from living among the, that in that space. I can't imagine. Time was, yeah. time was just, it was, it was wild. So yeah, getting back to that sort of insect thing, it's think of it just more as um, the media sphere as, as a media ecology that you adapt to. So your uh, etheric body, right? Your uh, psychic construct of, of your ego, your conscious mind adapts to that media ecology. And that thing, you know, is becoming more, um, more insect-like. Yeah. Like a, more like a, a winged insect, I think, you know, like maybe like a bee or okay. a high, something with a short attention span to fly. Like perhaps. a butterfly. Just flitting around from flower to flower, around, thing to thing. Not you know, very. I like the you know, all the, the the different eyes looking at a bunch of different things mm. simultaneously. You know that sort of one hundred and eighty degrees. Oh man, uh, yeah. sort of vision. I don't know, and it's different for everybody. Like I said, there's this multiplicity of being happening as well, so everybody's sort of adapting to this in different ways. Uh, my only solution so far is, like I said, you know, spend as much time as you can in organic time away from machinic time you know leave your watch leave your phone uh go walk in the woods uh you know get lost for a while not too lost you don't want to end up um you know missing 411 <laughs> right we don't need to have david polites show up david polites will show up right um <laughs> he'll be on his show man i mean i would almost i would almost i would almost wear like some bright ass north face gear just to be on the show out in the out in the woods but no not going to do that. <laughs> I I want to say about David Politis, he's my he's my favorite spoopy boomer, and yeah, I, like I do him. like I do like putting on his YouTube videos and listening to him, you know, talk about these cases. And he he did a twenty part Bigfoot class series. Oh man, that was, that was awesome! Incredibly interesting to listen to while while just you know doing random stuff around the house. Like I, I I'm doing random stuff around the house for an hour. I put him on the background and. You know, it's it's inter- he has a very interesting point of view about Bigfoot. He thinks it's a he thinks it's a kind of man, mm-hmm. mm. but he's but he's also open to the idea that there are metaphysical aspects to to Bigfoot that that can't be explained. Yeah, and uh, he doesn't and and he you could tell how upset like he's such a funny boomer because you could tell how upset he gets by the oh it's a it's a it's a rare ape crowd right think about you know. the metaphysical aspects of, of of man right when a bear eats you know a random hiker think about how like the bear doesn't understand the metaphysics of human society all of that's invisible to it all all that it knows is it's suddenly it's being hunted by 50 humans you know and it's just over for it instantly because just because it ate one person you know, it's got a hel- there's a helicopter overhead and they are zeroing in on it because the, the policy is just to, you know, exterminate. Right. Uh, Anything that harms humans. Yes. And it doesn't know about our policies and all of these other things that we just we take for granted. But to a bear, that's metaphysical. That's completely beyond its ability to to process. So, yeah, there's definitely encounters. Think about other forms of life that are out there, you know, cryptids, the the. 
the way, and I, that's sort of an oversimplification, but the way that it operates, which to, to it are probably very natural and organic to us are like, what is it doing? How does it disappear like that? What's, mm. what's, where's it going? Um, seem metaphysical. There could be very, there could be an explanation for it. It could just be slipping between uh, various rates of time. Uh, for example, who sure. knows? Just like, just like in the old uh, $6 million man show when they brought in Bigfoot, he was some sort of metaphysical creature. He could slide between. He, yeah. Yeah. So that's, I mean, they were telling us that back then. So maybe, maybe it's true. I think there's a lot of indication that that's what's happening, that it is a um, an ultra terrestrial, as they say. Well, I, I, I tend to agree. I also, I also believe that they, they have some sort of, again, like ultra terrestrial uh, EMF detection. Like whether even even like the batteries in your flashlight, they can pick that up. Like they're, they're just that's how they escape. I mean, that, that, yeah, they're, they're there. They're clearly there. You but. do hear random things like stories of of cryptids getting surprised, mm-hmm. and I think I wonder about that. Like, was the person's? Did they not have the phone on them? You know, were they just completely zoned out in that moment? Right. Because there is a there is a um a psychic as- aspect. You hear these stories of people encountering Bigfoot in the in the the thing will telepathically uh, interface with them somehow. So I do think they can sort of hear our thoughts. So if you're just completely walking around in the zone, you don't have your phone on you, there's a good chance you might just walk into a Bigfoot you know, and, and then, or some other, you know, hominid that's out there in the woods and they will just, they'll be freaked out by your presence. They'll be a bit surprised because they didn't see you coming. Well, that makes, if it you makes, think, a lot if of you sense. think of a thought as having a sort of EMF signature, you could you could uh, think of it that way. Oh, absolutely, it's, it does because your brain, your brain, you know, the concept of the brain as a computer would, it would clearly put off EMF. Mm-hmm. Um, but so yeah, this this also plays into the oh, why didn't you take a picture? Well, if you were to see one and you had your camera, you wouldn't have been able to see one because the EMF from your camera likely anybody who does. I mean, they don't. They're not carrying a watch with a battery in it, or a, uh, yeah. a cell phone, or whatever. That makes that makes a little bit of sense there. Mm, possible. Mm. It's good. Yeah. It's fun to think about. Anyway. It is definitely fun to think about. I love that aspect of David Pilates. Um, I, I and I like when he gets mad. He gets like boomer mad on his stuff when he, he gets on there. Yeah. And like like somebody that. in the comments, like he'll 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 get in his video and he'll like yell at the guy in the comments that he didn't like, but he won't actually mention the guy. You know, it's, I, I remember one video I was listening to in the background where he was getting mad that a guy couldn't use punctuation. I think like, was like, why, why, why am I even bothering reading this? Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's great. I love, yeah, it, I love it. It shows that he's a human to me. I mm-hmm. like, I, I don't like, I don't like entertaining the idea that David Polides is this, some um, mass controlled opposition or, or even going into like, I, I think, like, I think Tucker Carlson is is the best example of limited hangout, mm-hmm. and sure, yeah. I, I and I don't really feel th- I don't really get that from David. You know, I he, I, he is I, to I, a I, point. I, he is to a point. I mean, obviously, he's not going to because he doesn't give you anything. He just provides you the information. He doesn't give you any, you know, any any sort. Well, of- in his defense, what he does is that is a kind of old school Fordian uh, way of doing things. Just I, I will just present the data. Right. No, I don't have a problem. I, you know, look, I, I love David Pilates. I have no problem with any of his stuff. I buy his books from him. Right. Actually, I did not. The last time I bought Tribal Bigfoot, uh, I bought it from yeah, he, Abe Books. He, but yeah. He, yeah. He bought me Tribal Bigfoot. No, I enjoy that book. Yes. I, I mainly wanted it. Unfortunately, you know, no offense to David Pilates, but I mainly wanted that book for the forensic sketches in there. 
from mm-hmm. the forensic sketch artist. Mm-hmm. Those the, it's just some fascinating art. As far as him being some sort of slick, uh, limited hangout, I, I the video I saw of him where he was the audio was terrible, and he knew it was terrible. He knew that there was going to be wind, and he says, "Like I, I don't care, just deal with it." <laughs> He's <laughs> sort of preemptively yelling at you to deal with this bad audio. It's, right. it's really funny. So no, well, there's no way. Though, I, there's so. very small chance that he is uh, co-opted in some way. I don't know. He's a boomer, so I mean, there's yeah. He's easily led. I mean, remember you remember that uh, Jordan Maxwell had his entire fortune scammed off of him. You know, even the yeah. even the most woke, yeah. the most woke of conspiracy boomers got got scammed by some kid. Definitely, yeah. No, that's a good. People talk about that, like we. You know, people puzzle over how could the moon landing be faked? Like, the, because it happened while the boomers were around. These are people that, you know, you can get on the phone and just take their whole life savings from them. Right? Dude, <laughs> who was it was telling me recently? There was, he was telling me about his parents who are both retired and his mother is taking both of their pensions and sending both of their pensions to some shyster who is. Uh, sweet talking his mom in DMs, basically, right? And got his mom to like send all of his money. He knows he's not getting anything. Wow. He doesn't care. Yeah, it's oh. like it's like the ultimate boomer scam. I was like, really? This is happening? Really? He's like, yeah, it's been happening for years. My dad doesn't care. My mom's like, yeah, my yeah. dad's stuck and in front of Fox they... News, and dad, mom, mom's just like thinks that this this uh, this Fabio looking guy is gonna sweep, you know? Because remember Fabio, like boomer, boomer women love mm. Fabio. Is gonna sweep down on a fucking white horse and sweep her up. And remember, I mean, like the boomers and Gen X were both like fed all these lies about what they were going to get when they grew up. Right. The boomers were going to get, the boomers were going to get, um, I don't know. They went to the moon and all that stuff. They got all that stuff, right? They have actually the boomers got all this stuff. The Gen X was going to get stuff. Gen X was going to get flying cars and star Trek type shit. Right. We didn't get any of that. (laughs) No, that's, uh, that's really, what's really funny seeing some of these zoomers, um, go into the, the moon thing. Like they've been promising, like a base on the moon, you know, or space travel, commercial space travel for generations now. Yeah. yeah. I, I was told in my public school prison in the eighties that by this time, for sure, I would have uh, Puerto Rico as the 51st state. We would be doing everything by the metric system and I would have a flying skateboard. Where's my flying skateboard? Right. Yeah. What was, what was the date of, what was the date of the, uh, of the back to the future? When they, when they went to the future, what was it? Two thousand. I don't. I don't uh, it was two thousand something. I think. Yeah, some, something we've already passed. But yeah, man, we don't. We don't. We don't have any of that stuff. We were promised all this stuff. We didn't get it. It's. It's just another way. Just kind of like how space is fake. Um, they've. They've replaced. You know all of these things. Well, they've. They've. They've lied to us with their. With their. Their entertainment, their movies, and their academia, with their globes and their. And their. Their astronauts and their showing us the the Challenger exploding on television. And all that stuff, um, man. You don't you you don't really have a chance as a kid in the United States. <laughs> Damn. Um, Did we ever? I mean, we we every day we breathe, we have a chance, well, right? Yeah. I mean, like, okay, okay, yes, I know. Every day on this side of the dirt is a good day. I get it, dog butt. But honestly, like, aside from aside from that, like, what you know? What I mean, like, like. It's amazing. I mean, the boomers, the boomers got it hard. The extras got it hard. The the millennials got it, and the, the, these 
these zoomers i don't know <laughs> they got tiktok well sometimes i wonder how much my nostalgia of my childhood in the 80s is my actual experience growing up in the 80s or the combined media experience of of being a kid in the 80s that's a good question i you I think a lot of that applies even more so to the boomers and the the 1960s. the The myth of the um, of the hippies overcodes, so to say, uh, and overwrites the actual reality mm-hmm. um, of of what actually what it was like you know, during that time. It's been completely revised in the minds of of most boomers, glamorized. Um, <laughs> Most of them weren't hippies. Most of them weren't. Most of them were just no. normal kids. They're like, but when you hear about the hippie, when you hear about the sixties, when you see anything about the sixties, it's always flower power and San Francisco and and yeah. and Altamont and Monterey I'm and t- Woodstock and and that was literally a very very small percentage of people um, that that had anything to do with any of that. Most people were regular, just normies living their lives the way they still do today, or try to anyway. I, yeah, I talk about that about how like you have a very specific sort of flow of time, if you think about it, you know, a vibe, a rhythm uh, that is communicated from these tertiary temporal objects, these things that they're, they're, they're separate from any living person's memory, but they replace that memory. So you have this complete hallucination of what happened in the sixties that, that just comes to us because yeah, the, 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 the memory has been supplanted by the aggregate of all of these these objects of film, movies, um, books, the music videos, all of the things that that come together that form this this overlay. Which, yeah, it's I mean, compl- it, it's, go ahead. When you try to tell somebody who's like the boomer age right now that every vietnam biopic pick or movie that they watch like every song in that soundtrack was written by the son or daughter of someone who was in the military industrial complex at the time they they don't want to hear it they don't care they, they don't, because they don't in their head that. in their head all the people that wrote that music back then was a rebel like them trying to live their own lives trying mm-hmm. to trying to you know shake the system around yeah, it doesn't. It's they were e- very easily brainwashed. Those those people back then. I mean, they still are. Well, I what, mean, they still what are. Kind but of chance, what kind of chance did they have? You right. know, hundred percent of what was on TV was basically the gospel. You mm-hmm. know, he believed all of it. We only had three channels back then. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it wasn't like cable. You have one hundred and fifty million channels and all that. Um, Schwab, we are over two hours, uh, sir. Yeah. And we're going to have to, we're going right. to roll this one up. Um, but I would love to have you come back on any time, dude. Um, okay. you have so sure. much stuff that like, I feel like, I feel like your, your, your Schwab stack was, was made for, for this show. Like, <laughs> really? That's cool. Dude. I love, I yeah, love everything I've read this. so far. Everything I've read so far. I, I love it. It's great. So. And this is all about. stuff that we've uh, discussed, tan- like, well, not all of it, but there's like a lot of subjects that we've discussed tangentially mm-hmm. and uh, you, you take it from a different angle and it's very, it's, it's awesome to see this stuff uh, from different perspectives. Yeah. It's a lot of fun for me. Um, I'm just coming out of my first year of writing now. So some of the stuff I'm writing is me 
uh, first of all, gauging interest, and then also just sort of exploring these topics for the first time as well in this research to kind of try to, because people are going, are have already started asking me for the, uh, you know, United Swabian theory of, of the occult <laughs> and everything. And I, I do kind of want to give, I don't want to be like David Polites and never give my own theories. I want to do, I want to give a, you know, more broad theories about some, some aspects of, uh, Fordian phenomenon out there. Cool. So yeah, I am, I am kind of assembling my, you know, my backlog here. Awesome. Well, I mean, there's, there's plenty to read already. You're uh, in your first year, you're quite prolific. Um, mm. Yes. And go ahead and tell everybody where they can find you. Yeah, I'm on, uh, you know, Substack, Schwabstack. What is it? Schwab, uh, Schwabstack.substack.com. Mm-hmm. And then on Twitter, you can find me at Real Human Schwab. There it is, Real Human Schwab. He's a real human being. And we'll be posting. <laughs> we'll be posting links and everything oh, yeah. uh, when we post the show, so uh, so people can find you and stuff. Awesome. Sounds, right sounds great, man. Well, thanks for coming on, sir. Uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. Everyone, yeah, subscribe. A- subscribe to his Schwab stack. Yes, do that. This is a threat. Thanks, guys. I had a great time. I'll see you next time. All right. Take it easy, man. Have a good one. Bye. All right, DB. That was Schwab. Man. Wow. Absolutely terrific. Yes. That was great. A lot of fun. Uh, I like. I'm not lying when I say I enjoy reading his Substack. I've been I've been enjoying it since you first brought it up. But like I was saying, I don't get a chance to read as much as I would like to. I don't read for pleasure as much as I I, I used to um, because I'm you know I'm reading for the show or whatever. But uh, yeah, his 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 blog is pretty gnarly. I like it a lot. What's funny is there there are not a lot of things that have been coming out lately that I'm excited to get around to reading. You know, mm-hmm. just like my my curiosity hasn't been you know activated on it but i'm looking forward to breaking into more of these articles and, and seeing how his pers- uh, what his perspective is on some of these concepts a lot of which that we've talked about on the show oh for sure he talks about uh magonian and magonians jacques Vallée, and the concept of uh people below the earth um and so therefore hollow earth maybe layer cake earth even uh going further into stuff that we've talked about like i said earlier like the gate program stuff um a whole bunch of uh, dude any conspiracy esoteric conspiracy he's probably got an article or he's going to do an article on it so we'll definitely be talking to schwab again it was a lot of fun and uh, i hope everybody enjoyed that but uh, we are going to get out of here. DB, do you have, uh, is there going to be a creepypasta at the end of this? Uh, yes, the smiley.jpg part two. All right. We're going to listen to that. And we will see you Tuesday live at the Nationalist Inquirer over on Pilled, DLive, and Odyssey. We're going to get out of here. We'll see you all later. Time travel makes you gay. Smile.dog.jpg Part 2 Mary E. I assumed was not on effective medication. That was why after my visit to her apartment in 2007, I sent out feelers to several folklore and urban legend-oriented news groups, websites, and mailing lists, hoping to find the name of a supposed victim of Smile.jpg who felt more interested in talking about his experiences. For a time... Nothing happened, and at length I forgot completely about my pursuits. 
since I had begun my freshman year of college and was quite busy. Mary contacted me via email, however, near the beginning of March 2008. I am sorry, incredibly sorry, about my behavior last summer when you came to interview me. I hope you understand that it was no fault of yours, but rather my own problems that led to me to act out as I did. I realized that I could have handled the situation more decorously, however, I hope you will forgive me. At the time, I was afraid. You see, for 15 years, I have been haunted by Smile.jpg. Smile.dog comes to me in my sleep every night. I know that sounds silly, but it is true. There is an ineffable quality about my dreams, uh, my nightmares, that makes them completely unlike any real dreams I have ever had. I do not move, and I do not speak. I simply look ahead, and the only thing ahead of me is the scene from that horrible picture. I see the beckoning hand, and I see smile.dog. It talks to me. It is not a dog, of course, though I am not quite sure what it really is. It tells me it will leave me alone if only I do as it asks. All I must do, it says, is spread the word. That is how it phrases its demands, and I know exactly what it means. It wants me to show it to someone else, and I could. This week after my incident, I received in the mail a manila envelope with no return address. Inside was only a three and a half inch floppy diskette. Without having to check, I knew precisely what was on it. I thought for a long time about my options. I could show it to a stranger, a co-worker. I could even show it to Terrence. As much as the idea disgusted me. And what would happen to them? Well, if Smile.jpg kept his word, I could sleep. If it lied, though, um, what would I do? And who is to say something worse would not come for, for me if I did as the creature asked? So I did nothing for 15 years, though I kept the diskette hidden amongst my things. Every night for 15 years, Smile.dog has come to me in my sleep and demanded that I spread the word. For 15 years, I stood strong, though there have been hard times. Many of my fellow victims on the BBS board where I first encountered Smile.jpg stopped posting. I heard some of them committed suicide. Others remain completely silent, simply disappearing off the face of the web. They are the ones I worry about the most. I sincerely hope you will forgive me, Mr. L. But last summer when you contacted me and my husband about an interview, I was near the breaking point. I decided I was going to give you the floppy diskette. I did not care if Smile.dog was lying or not. I wanted to end. You were a stranger, someone I had no connection with, and I thought I would feel no sorrow when you took the diskette as part of your research and sealed your fate. Before you arrived, I realized what I was doing. I was plotting to ruin your life. I could not stand the thought, and in fact, I still cannot. I am ashamed, Mr. L, and I hope that this warning will dissuade you from any further investigation of Smile.jpg. You may in time encounter someone who is, if not weaker than I, then wholly more depraved, someone who will not hesitate to follow Smile.dog's orders. Stop while you are still whole. Sincerely, Mary E. 
Terrence contacted me later that month with the news that his wife had killed herself. While cleaning up the various things she'd left behind, closing email accounts and the like, he had happened upon the above message. He was a man in shambles. He wept as he told me to listen to his wife's advice. He found the diskette. He later revealed and burned it until it was nothing but a stinking pile of blackened plastic. The part that most disturbed him, however, was the diskette had hissed as it melted like some sort of animal, he said. I will admit that I was a little uncertain about how to respond to this. At first, I thought perhaps it was a joke, with the couple belatedly playing with the situation in order to get a rise out of me. A quick check of several Chicago newspaper online obituaries, however, proved that Mary E. was indeed dead. There was, of course, no mention of suicide in the article. I decided that, for a time at least, I would not further pursue the subject of Smile.jpg since, especially, I had finals coming up at the end of May. But the world has odd ways of testing us. Almost a full year after I'd returned from my disastrous interview with Mary E., I received another email. Hello, I found your email address through a mailing list. Your profile said you were interested in SmileDog. I have saw it, it, and it is not as bad as everyone says. I have sent it to you here, just spreading the word. Smile. The final line chilled me to the bone. According to my email client, there was one file attachment called naturally smile.jpg. I considered downloading it for some time. It was most likely a fake, I imagined, and even if it weren't, I was never wholly convinced of smile.jpg's peculiar powers. Mary E.'s account had shaken me, yes, but she was probably mentally unbalanced anyway. After all, how could a simple image of what smile.jpg was said to accomplish? What sort of creature was it that could break one's mind with only the power of the eye? If such things were patently absurd, then why did the legend exist at all? If I downloaded the image, if I looked at it, and if Mary turned out to be correct, if Smile.Dog came to me in my dreams demanding I spread the word, what would I do? Would I live my life as Mary had, fighting against the urge to give in until I died, or would I simply spread the word, eager to put it to rest? And if I chose the latter route, how could I do it? Whom would I burden it in? If I went through with my earlier intention to write a short article about Smile.jpg, I decided I could attach it as evidence. And anyone who read the article, anyone who took interest would be affected. And even assuming the Smile.jpg attached to the email was genuine, would I be capricious enough to save myself in that manner? Could I spread the word? Yes, I could. Click here.